This is the last session, um, and we are going to look at, look at online worlds. I'm going to start down the end and let the speakers introduce themselves, which I think may produce a flurry of, of light and sound. So I'm just going to shut up and let them talk. John. Uh, my name's John Lester. My uh, second life name is Pathfinder Linden. We all get to choose new names in uh, second life, and I figured since my real life name was John, I could pick something a little more interesting. Um, I work in the community development group at Linden Lab, and so what we do is uh, we focus on uh, figuring out the best tools to give people uh, to help the community self-evolve and to uh, help people do things that they want to do. Uh, one of my focuses is actually on uh, real-life education, so I, uh, I focus on uh, helping universities and schools who are interested in using Second Life to either augment their existing academic curriculum or do something they've never thought of doing before. Um, this also involves people doing things like uh, scientific visualization uh, and even, even things like, uh, you know, like online patient self-help groups and so forth. And uh, my background's in the brochure, so you can read that if you like. I'm Ron Miners. I've been working uh, in mostly an online community for about the last 10 years. I uh, started out at Empath, uh, which some of you may remember. Um, the, uh, most recently, I've been working on a couple of things. Uh, primarily, I've been working on uh, Multiverse, uh, which is a platform that's uh, been put together to serve as um, uh, a development technology for virtual worlds and uh, massively multiplayer online games. Um, the, the sort of core vision of the platform is that um, right okay, good. Uh, we'll be uh, uh, the platform itself will be accessible to uh, developers. There we go. Thank you. Um, on uh, on a, uh, a, a license-free basis, be, people will be able to start building with it. And that's not what I wanted. What I wanted was that. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, the, uh, the platform will be available to developers um, f for sort of whatever kind of world-building applications they want to do, whether they're, they're game developers, whether they're academics, whether they're sort of media companies, and that this will create a network of uh, virtual worlds and game spaces where people will sort of be able to develop um, without the need for an upfront licensing fee. We take our, our, our pieces as, as a uh, revenue sharing for those games or worlds that are actually making a profit, which not all of them, we expect not all of them will or will want to. Um, and the uh, sort of we, we uh, imagine a network of uh, games being created that will uh, sort of uh, cover a, a variety of creativity and, and niche uh, sort of applications. So let's, let's see some of these. Um, some of the current uh, uh, kind of dynamics of, of uh, the current paradigm for MMO and social world uh, creation. There, um, uh, let's see, we've got World of Warcraft and there uh, here. And we used to have a slide. Betsy Book was in one of the, one of the slides at one point. But um, yeah, it's her beast card. Um, and uh, there's sort of a number of applications that people are, are, are uh, creating. Um, the current paradigm for the creation of virtual worlds is, for the most part, that they're very expensive and, and very uh, 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 time-consuming to make, um, and that each one sort of stands uh, on its own as its own little uh, island, uh, and that um, you know to, to cross from one to another is somewhat uh, uh, um, there's friction there. It's not a seamless transfer. Um, the platform that we want to make has a, a, a universal client. These are a couple of screenshots of things that have been developed uh, already. Platform's currently in open beta. Um, 
the development tools are in development now, um, they're definitely sort of uh, much easier to use for folks with an engineering uh, bent at current point. Command line uh, 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 familiarity is definitely a plus. Um, at some point, uh, we expect that, that with the, as, as the development continues, we expect the tools will get easier and easier to use. But uh, currently, uh, even so, uh, there are a number of teams that are uh, beginning to build uh, interesting stuff. Um, and it's uh, sort of based on the nervous, uh, notion of a, a solid back-end platform technology that enables uh, us to do some of the uh, uh, creation of a, a scalable server that has a, a very kind of uh, robust architecture that enables people to add on to it um, uh, in terms of plugins or, or new functionalities that they might want, and that this hopefully will create um, uh, a marketplace uh, as part of the network that will enable people to uh, create technology that others can use as well. And we're already seeing this happening with, with development teams who are creating uh, little plugins. Somebody, um, somebody created a plugin to uh, enable pets. Is, is an interface to so that uh, the NPCs would would follow you around or the mobs or whatever, which I thought was absolutely delightful. Um, but anyway, so uh, so the, the notion is to create a network where both uh, the developers have an easy access to the platform, the ability to uh, modify it to their own needs, the ability to share technology and artwork, and that this all benefits the consumer who gets this sort of wide array of experiences available to them, um, you know, fairly seamlessly because of the universal client. Um, let's see. These are uh, uh, a couple more of the, the worlds uh, that have been built. These are uh, two of the teams that are currently working on the platform. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's been really exciting for me, I primarily work now in developer relations, which means I get to work with a bunch of really excited indie teams who have never had a platform for them to be able to create you know, the game of their dreams. And now they're doing it, and they're happy about this, and it's absolutely wonderful. And some of the stuff that folks are coming up with is just breathtaking. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of steps involved. And as, as I said, the platform's still at an early stage. It's kind of difficult to use. But, um, the, uh, but even so, people are doing amazing stuff and the most creative stuff. I mean, uh, I'm under NDA, so I can't really talk about it. But uh, please take my word for it. There's uh, <laughs> uh, some very creative people out there. And they're doing really, really neat, neat things. And, and at some point, you'll, you'll get to see it on uh, uh, Multiverse, I, I hope. Uh, and, oh, yeah, the Multiverse team, uh, it's a bunch of ex-Netscape guys, actually, it's the deal. This was the Netscape server team, a bunch of engineers, uh, and IT guys, and a couple of business folks who uh, get together, got together at one point and said, um, you know, we know how to build this scalable architecture. We know kind of uh, how some of these network dynamics can play out. We've seen what happens when we put uh, a client that enables access to technology and is easy to use in the hands of the population. Let's replicate that for the creation of virtual worlds and MMOs. And, uh, and and so that's, that's sort of the vision. And, and it's wonderful to work with them, actually. Um, uh, just from my own sort of point of view, uh, they're, they're, they, they know what they're doing, and they're wonderfully supportive of the community, for which I'm very grateful. Um, and some of those basic things about how uh, we might be of advantage in, in some of the, um, as compared to some of the previous models for MMOG or virtual world creation. Um, we're hoping to make it faster and a lot cheaper to be able to build worlds. And ideally, you know, something that... Uh, um, at some point, uh, you know, uh, as, as, the, as the technology becomes more developed, as it becomes more user-friendly, we're, we're hoping to sort of lower the technology barrier so that even perhaps at some point even casual users may be able to create their own world or something like that. Actually, that's already happening. We've got one user who, uh, 
who really had no strong technology background, who just sort of watered in and said, I have this project I want to do. This is going to let me do it. You guys have to help me get there. And it's happening. The community is being really supportive of, of his learning efforts. He's persistent as all hell. You've got to give him credit for that. But he's step by step learning how to, to do some fairly tricky stuff. It's, it's really exciting. Um, uh, the, yeah, the whole sort of vision in, in includes the sort of network notion where uh, it's an ecology basically that kind of feeds itself. The, the diversity of, of content means that the, that the user community has lots of fun stuff to play with. The users enable, uh, you know, uh, hopefully a, a, a solid um, a commercial standing for, for some of the developers and so forth. And at some point, hopefully enough of this will be profitable that our taking a cut of some of the revenue will keep us in business, which would be nice. Um, we talked about some of that stuff. Um, and yeah, that's uh, the one, one brief bit. So some of the folks who were working on um, uh, Online Alchemy is, is Mike Seller's team. Um, the other three are all indies. Actually, uh, um, yeah, none of them have any previous game experience. They're all sort of hobbyists. The Force of Arms is a, is a guild, basically. They were a, a crew that was initially a guild. They're all IT guys. Some of the stuff is in development on Multiverse Now. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, that's our, our little, we've got a little demo world up. So you can log on. If you log on to the multiverse.net site now, there's a client you can download that will enable you to access that world. It's very simple. It's basically just to show that, yes, in fact, we do have you know, some technology that's actually working already. So. Oh, this is Anne. This, this is some of my stuff that, that hopefully will apply to the, the panel. Um, it's, uh, the, and the notion is, the notion that I've sort of been playing with kind of throughout my career as, as a community guy is that all this stuff is culture and the culture is dynamic and that especially in an online environment, um, you've got to, people are taking advantage of a tremendous opportunity to play with the culture uh, in very interesting ways. Um, and uh, a couple of the things that occurred to me that, that might be sort of interesting. I mean, one of the things we're seeing is a lot of interest. Uh, James Cameron is on our board of directors, for example. There's a lot of interest in Hollywood in, in creating you know, transmedia uh, uh, offerings uh, on the platform. And one of the things that I think is, is an unsolved problem uh, so far is uh, at least, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that we've ever seen the, the killer transmedia app yet, at least in, in terms of MMOGs. Um, the Matrix Online is probably the one that comes the closest, and I'm not sure that people widely regard it as successful. Um, so I think that that's yet to be done, and I think that one of the things will happen with, with, the, with the platform that we're creating is that people will be able to experiment, and further that that, that experimentation will create a culture of further experimentation, that, that all of this uh, cultural stuff tends to feed on itself, and that as people sort of start to demonstrate success with some new memes, what will happen is that those memes will get adopted and, and, and propagated, and, and what that's going to mean is, I think, uh, a very strong sort of uh, culture of... Uh, innovation and eventually some of the some of the answers to the problems of how do you create an online narrative structure where, where people can participate within that structure and yet keep sort of the core narrative uh, or brand uh, uh, identity intact uh, how do you create a, a you know a matrix that works a way for people to interact with the the, the core um, creative material or core IP or whatever and and yet still be able to participate fully um, and uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's my main thing. Oh, yeah, it was one other thing. It was sort of fun. I thought um, listening to some of the talks yesterday, especially, I started thinking about uh, how some of the people or why some of the people are are are, are in, interacting with 
these, these technologies the way they are and these, these community opportunities. And one of the things uh, that was mentioned yesterday was, was games as simulations and, and, and MMOs as simulations. And um, I've sort of been kind of toying lately with the notion that, um, that a lot of what's, that, that, that people look at it on some level backwards, they're trying to understand what fun is, when, when in actuality what we can do is we can look at um, sort of uh, the sorts of things, uh, uh, confidence is a good example. Um, the, the challenges that online games or, or most games play, um, uh, play out uh, can lead to improved sense of confidence. You, you, you see people you know, repeating the same task over and over again until they master it. Um, uh, there's, I think, um, a very real correlation between people's personal experience and, and their personal sort of view of the world and what they seek out online and how that feeds back into their own notion of themselves. Another sort of easy way to see this is, is kind of in social terms where, where some of the you know, social networking sites or opportunities there does a great job, for example, of, of bringing the teens into the general community. It's a really simple example, but I really like it where the, the, the teens have an opportunity to, to learn what it means to be an adult without being immediately identified as teens. As far as their the community can tell, they're, they're fully participants. So they're, they're, there's a learning experience there. And I think that that's a lot of what draws people into these uh, spaces and, and, and experiences. And that, that you know, this, this, this idea that fun is something other than what's kind of central to our, our normal life is, is, is somewhat erroneous. And it really sort of works the other way around. So uh, at length, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> you might need to do this weird yeah. thing, too. Yeah. Hey. Okay. Right. There. That one just takes a little while to kick in. Okay. So my name is Todd Cunningham. I run the consumer technology research and brand planning for MTB Networks. Um, <clears throat> for about nine years, I ran research uh, for MTB Proper, the brand, and uh, we were fortunate enough to have a uh, senior management team who was extremely interested and dedicated to understanding who our consumer was at its core, uh, hugely focused on the audience and, of course, all the other brands you see here that have uh, many of which have, have uh, flourished in the last year and a half, uh, mostly because of just understanding that like there's much, much many more opportunities for people to express themselves and to connect with media brands in big ways. And part of the reason we're so excited and thrilled to be a, a, one of the founding partners of C3 has been we also have partner people like this who are also dedicated to the same kinds of things. And um, so I'm just going to breeze through a few pages of some uh, slides of just how the way we approach. Uh, consumers in general and the way that we think about uh, understanding them as we look at them today. So you can just to frame how the, the kind of things that I'll talk about and there are a number of uh, other people who are here from MTV Networks and pleased to say in the audience, uh, many of them who are smarter than me and I'm sure I'll throw to some of them to answer some of the questions as we move forward. Um, for us it's all about translating the spoken word uh, really to what is what we would call as emotional connections. We feel like that at the core of all this is about emotionally, emotionally connecting with one another, but also emotionally connecting with the content, the characters, all the things which are going on on that other side of that screen. Of course, increasingly as that screen becomes to become more porous, as I, someone inspired me just earlier to uh, kind of talk about it, it is, um, we find more and more that that emotional connection is even deeper and even more important. And we do it by way of lots of research, more than 365 days a year. We have a huge toolbox of, uh, of gadgets and tools that we use to study them and understand them. This is just a few of them, uh, and these are just hooks for like titles of different kinds of things. We do lots of deprivation studies where we actually take 
uh, our brands <laughs> away from a number of our heaviest consumers and allow them to be able to uh, talk and to, you know to keep audio cassette recorders and talk about their cravings and what things they've missed and what things that they're doing now. Um, quite revealing for any of you that have brands or services which are ritual, ritualistic kinds of things, where you you desire or aspire for them to be rituals. I would suggest you do deprivation is a great tool because it, it, in fact, if you think about all the things that we use so often, when you're without it, you emote. So whether that's sex or money or heat or whatever, you, uh, it's something just to think about. Um, we also do a lot of other kinds of studies where we're actually taking people's behaviors and turning them around in on themselves. We can talk about that later. Uh, virtual tag-alongs, all those kinds of things, all the many tools, some of, these, some of these things you've probably heard of. But in the virtual space, some of this stuff is new. So I wanted to just like kind of officially kind of introduce you to some of those, and um, certainly I think you'll be have, you'll have copies of this presentation too. And if you want to talk to me about this later, I'm happy to do that. Uh, our innovation, of course, comes not just in our creativity around the products that we create, but also our innovation in thinking. Uh, we're in a new world with a very familiar mandate. Uh, for us, it's about growing the value of our brands and deepening the relationships with the consumers. For all of our advertisers who are connected with us, for all the partners who are affiliates, um, anybody who wants to connect with us is very interested in those two things first and foremost. Yeah, they want to make money, but they really want to grow the value of their brands and deepen their relationships with their, with their customers. Um, what's different today is the, are the next two things. So before, growing the value of your brand was always about performance. Well, today it's like you have to be really clear about how you can grow your performance. And clarity is more important than it's ever been. It's like lots of feature-rich kinds of experiences we find consumers can be bothered with. They'd be happy just to move straight along and like move on to the next thing that's more clear. Uh, the more that we can be clear, the better we can perform. And then the second piece of deepening the relationship with the consumers, that's always been about ROI. And you know, ROI has been is certain something certainly something that has uh, arrived on the scene as a new kind of buzzword, but it's always been there for us. But now it's about emotional resonance. So what that means is basically we have new tools. We have to look at things. We have to report back in more hybrid kinds of ways. We can't just report traffic numbers. We can't just report quantity of people who show up and and the actions that they take. We also are being asked like, what does this? How does this help to direct? get us to a deeper emotional connection. So that is a, um, you know, some comfort in where we've been, but there's a lot of like new places that we're going where it's very kind of scary. Uh, our transformation came when we, when we talked more and more about engagement, of course, in the advertising world, of course, it's all about engagement. Uh, but for us, this last year, it was like we were able to finally monetize, or actually quantify, uh, the, uh, the notion that we've talked about for years, which is about like when you're in the environment, does the halo effect actually exist? And we call that transference. For us, in the past, it was like engagement time alone didn't really matter. It really is people's propensity to pass it along. So our new mantra internally is about taking it in is the way we used to measure. People wanting to put it back in takes it one step further. So putting it back in can mean passing it along to someone else or actually going back to it and, and re, reliving it, reimagining it, re-experiencing it in a big way. And I often find in talking with Henry and, and the team here that these are areas where uh, this is new. Uh, in a big way. I mean, it's certainly something that, that you're focused on, but it's not always something that you're talking about because it's like you're not thinking of how do you commercialize this. It's how do you play to the fan base. Well, in order to, to make money at it and to keep moving to new and new levels, we have to think about both those things at the same time. So that's sort of why I wanted to just kind of introduce these things. Uh, we just finished a study uh, called Circuits of Cool, which is our third in a series of studies about the, the intangible thing of cool. Uh, about four years ago, we embarked on a study called Sources of Cool, which is a study of uh, 15 countries around the world with about 1,000 people, 18 to 20, or 15 to 24, to understand what were the people, places, and things that they identified as cool. 
uh, at that time, uh, we started the study in the Philippines. And uh, I was there on that first night in Manila where we called back to New York to some people here just to talk to them about what we learned. And, you know, to kind of go over the discussion guide and, like, are we on the right track? And we found that we had hit a roadblock. Um, first off, for one thing, in many countries, and certainly in Manila at the time, the notion of cool was something that they didn't even, like, they didn't understand what that meant. It wasn't I mean, even about the word. It was the concept of it. And the concept of it was something, for them, they were just needed to have things just to get by. They just needed just basic daily sustenance. They didn't need things that, that anything that was cool was something that actually helped them to like live their day-to-day -day lives. So big, you know, American company, American-based company coming in like trying to force its, its definition or divine, its de the people's definition of cool was something that we, was a big wake-up call for us. The reason I share that with you is because, of course, as we are creating virtual worlds that are going to be able to be accessed by many people around the world, and even within our own United States, this notion of something that is like pass-alongable, shareable, shareworthy, all those kind of things, cool is a, is a kind of turnstile that it has to pass through. And in that study, we learned that it's like it's not always the same for everyone. So it's very, very, very important that we put all of our differences down. We're extremely receptive to try to understand those. The second in that phase was once something we called collections of cool, which was just an audit of all the kind of written materials, academic and otherwise, around the notion of cool. And the third one is a study that's called circuits of cool, which was really understanding what does technology help to do to further that notion of cool, to enable it, uh, it's in the way of it, and what have you. So just a few headlines for that. Um, four big things that we learned was it's about association, choice, occasion, and time and attention, and I'll show you that in one second. Um, for us, a lot of our clients, a lot of people who work with us oftentimes feel like there are these myths or anthems that they like to play back all the time. That they, teens rule online or you know, young people are the ones who do, you know, who do all these activities. We would say, or do they? You're not going to be able to read this chart, but I'm just trust me what it says. <laughs> um, this is from Forrester, and just, it, basically what it just shows is in the first, it shows these kind of social computing activities of what people are doing online. And it goes from using emails to like you know bidding on online auctions to reading blogs all the way down to using using RSS feeds and downloading downloading movies at the bottom. Where's Where's I am? I am instant messaging is about midway through huh. underneath sending electronic greeting cards. Oh, okay. um, <clears throat> the second the and what the bars are across are the percent that actually do each activity. The darker bar is daily. The next bar over is several times a week and then several times a month. You get to the next to the last column, which is percent that spend an hour or more per day doing the activity. And finally, the mean age. That's the one I wanted to draw your attention to. The interesting thing about all of these is the mean age of none of these is below the age of 32. So oftentimes we get so hyped up and think that we know exactly who our target audience is because we've passed along some myth or some story that it's always teens, it's always tweens, it's always people in college. When in fact it isn't necessarily the case, there are a lot of people, and some, some of you this is not any new news, but to many people I find it to be quite new news, that many people are doing these things at work, many of these people are doing things during time when they either are, when they would be doing leisure time, but in fact of course work and school now bleed into our leisure time, right? So it's like with Wi-Fi, which is of course the very moment where it all becomes true, where we're all aspiring to, tar to mar target and market to these people, in fact work or school is part of the mix. So the mean age, the median age of, uh, rather the mean age of the lowest uh, activity is at the very bottom here, which is publishing or maintaining a blog of 32. And you look at IMing, your question there, that's at 41. Uh, so it may come as a shock to some people, but I think it's something that it's like, uh, it's just important to kind of like true things up from time to time. 
quickly. Uh, it's about the association, of course. It's really important that we all understand like who you're associated with. More and more brands who want to be associated with virtual worlds in particular want to associate with the right people. Uh, they feel like that it's important they're associated with the right, in the right environments. The challenge is, of course, that for many people around the world, they have this thing that they call technology. They have no idea what in the world technology is. So when we sit in rooms like this and talk about technology and we talk about all these different advances and things, we have to remember that the people outside there have no idea what we're talking about. And we have to help, to make, help them understand what it is. And many times it's using, it's using the characters who are in the world. It's using real people. Uh, more often than not, we find that real people share a... They, they um, actually are able to do many things that we never could do as technologists or as media uh, developers. Are you eating that? <laughs> They're actually able to make it real for them. So this, this notion of what we call technology is really something that I think is really important that we remember here, that, that this technology is something that they're scared of. It's something that, that many times we've seen so many people talk to us about the fact that they'll get a video iPod or they'll get a gaming device or what have you, and it sits in a box. So often this very scenario happens. It's like they get it and they open it and they're like, oh, I guess I have to wait till my uncle so-and-so comes over to help me do this, or my nephew, or my dad, or someone else comes over. Well, of course, that person never comes around at the time when you think that they should be there to help you. And so it goes in a drawer, or in a box, or in a closet, or somewhere. And then finally, three or four months later, that person shows up, or you realize everyone around you starts to have this, or it's okay to do this. So you break it out and start to put it together yourself, and usually are frustrated because you can't, because the instructions aren't clear whoever the, tech, the media provider or the game developer is on the other side didn't think through how do I make it easy for the consumer to use it. It's like they're not, not they're setting out sort of trying to make it hard, it's just they're not always thinking how do I make it easy. Um, so more on that, I'm sure, as we talk about through a lot of this. Of course, we know there's lots of status symbols. I'm not going to go into that. Um, it's, of course, not just about choice. Uh, we, of course, have found that for many young people in particular, that the phone or anything that one is, can communicate, it's almost like this picture is like she's one with her phone. That is what it really is all about. It, and most of that is because it's free, it's private, and it's also about people that you don't know. And the number of people that, um, that we find increasingly that are like becoming friends with people that they don't even know, of course, is on the increase in a big way. Just a picture of some of the kinds of things that come out of the research that we do. We do lots of ethnographies. Here's a gamer, Stefan, uh, where we actually laid out what he's 14 year, years old and talks about what all kinds of things that are going on in his world. Uh, world of Warcraft, I often meet my friends via the internet and play World of Warcraft. Additionally, I can chat with them while playing. It's the very simple things that matter to him. We then go deeper into like understanding what his world's about. So he's a child of divorce, he's living in two households, uh, who his father is, who his mother is. We go even deeper to do kind of a family tree of them. So a high-tech family with history. Both of his parents, uh, his grandfathers were technology fans. Very open towards the latest developments. The newest laptop must be explained by Stefan to them. But one of them actually was a gamer. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times we, in that world of, like, demystifying or debunking myths, we, again, go back to this place where we feel like we know them because they are malleable. Or we know them because we can figure out what a 14-year-old thinks. Or we watch what those seven 14-year-olds did when, in fact, of course, as we all know, we're influenced by our surroundings. And so when they leave that lab, when they leave that interchange that you have with them, they go back into a world where they're inf heavily influenced by people who, are, who we're not even talking to. So I would encourage you in all of your research to try to like, understand their bigger world, understand the context of what's happening there, because it'll pay off in, in big, big ways. Um, then we went and talked to each of those people about what it is, what they have to say about their, uh, about Stefan in particular, and kind of things that we, to help us understand what it's about. Nearly the whole family seems to be addicted to technology. 
if that's the case, then it's like you know that you have many more kind of entry points to be able to help your game or your technology actually mean more to Stefan. Um, most recently, we've learned that it's certainly about the occasion, that um, in a multi-screen uh, world, that it's, in fact, the occasion is what's driving screen choice. It's not about the screen first, uh, even though Apple and many other people would love to have us think that it's about people are making a decision to watch that screen. We, in fact, find that people go through this process of understanding what's the occasion I'm in right now, who's around me, what's going on with me, then what screens are available. Then it goes into this nether region of, like, is this a... Is this something, an obligation I have to have, or is this something I really want to do? Looking at, then at what content, and then the screen choice happens. Uh, boys and girls have very different kinds of need states, of course, with technology. We found more and more that boys love SMSing. They love texting because it's a great way for them to have those important conversations. Because, of course, they can have short ones. Uh, they, they, you know, no, everyone is caught on to the, I can't hear you kind of thing anymore. It's like SMS is a great way for that to happen. For girls, of course, texting is a great way for them to stay, stay connected with their friends and uh, relatives. Of course, uh, in a world where there's more and more cultural differences, we find that time, of course, loses its value. That instantly you can talk to people around the world, you can embrace technology in new and different kinds of ways. But in particular, um, what's happening is in all these online social networks, attention is the very thing that actually emerges. And of course, the battle is now for... Uh, attention. The time is no longer, a, for us, it's certainly at MTV Networks and we find for our partners, time is no longer a, a reliable resource for us to, to uh, depend on to be able to project what people will do. We have to play to people's attention. And the more and more, and that's not a new currency, it's a new currency for us, it's not a new currency in the world of marketing and certainly in the world of technology, but it's something that we have to now focus on in much bigger ways. And the ways that we go about that we can certainly talk about as we move forward. Um, Three things, I'll just I'll leave these four things with you, just some consumer rituals that we think brands should be aware of. Attention, associate with things that matter, make it easy to make the right choice, help consumers manage those future occasions. More and more we're managing the future, it's not about managing the past. Uh, we don't have time to manage the past. We go into kids' homes and we say, show us your photos, and of course with ethnographies it was always about photographs, because that's such a great artifact for seeing how people really organize their thinking, organize their lives, what they used to symbolize what they're about. More and more, when they talk about those photographs, they're like, oh, it's over on the PC, I'll email them to you. And there's no value in them. They talk about them with any kind of, like, they don't cherish them in the way that they used to. They certainly put them up in, on MySpace pages and place, places like that, but it doesn't have the same kind of uh, currency that it did at one time. Finally, make sure that brand experiences are time well spent, and I'll stop. So, thank you. <laughs> Eric, do you want to say hi? Yeah, sure. Todd's going to do most of the talking for SD Networks. I'm Eric Ruber. Um, I've uh, been an on-air television producer for a couple of years at MTV, and I am a producer on Virtual Living Beach. Todd will be talking a lot about it, but I um, will be navigating through the world for, for, for everybody. Uh, and by the way, when I, when I mentioned that I, I didn't know of the, the killer app of... of uh, transmedia, uh, MMO. I, of course, was not speaking of anyone on this panel. Virtual <laughs> <laughs> Luna Beach is, is, is wonderful stuff. Well, and that's, that's something that, that I want to explore, but I want to start by asking, uh, what is the attraction of an online world, particularly for a consumer? I know that's a large question, but I think that we work big and whittle our way down to <laughs> some sort of point. Um, and so, I mean, why do people spend their time in these sorts of places? Oh, you know, what's the attraction of dreaming, you might as well ask. I think um, there are two things. Uh, one is um, connecting with people around the world that have similar interests. I mean, in the physical world, we're bounded uh, 
restricted by our geography. You know, I grew up in a town where no one else liked the music I liked. And I couldn't find people who liked the music I liked. Um, that's, you know, when you connect people in a global sense, you have the ability for people to find people who like what they like. And that's a very strong human uh, desire, I think. And, uh, and secondly is really the, the dreaming part, I think. Uh, you know, these, these virtual environments, and you know, specifically talking about uh, three-dimensional, perceptually immersive spaces, uh, they speak to our brains on a deep biological level. Our brains were designed through hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to thrive in a three-dimensional environment, to feel a sense of place when you're in a physical space. And, um, and lastly, the, uh, you know, we, we got it wrong with the 90s with the whole, you know, everyone will have the gear on the head, right? <laughs> You'll wear the skull thing, right? Uh, why, did, you know, why didn't that not... Why are people so into these virtual worlds, even though they're through a flat thing, a window? Uh, it's real, again, I think it speaks to, on, on a deep biological level, our brains are really good at taking just enough information and forming a complete whole. You know, again, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. I see a, an, an eye. I see a tooth. I see a striped tail. Brain goes, dude, that's a tiger. <laughs> right? The limbic system kicks in and you have an adrenaline rush. I mean, everyone here has cried at movies, and yet you're looking at 30 or 24 frames a second flash slideshow you know, on the screen, and yet you get emotionally immersed. So I think for those, those reasons are why I think people are finding them compelling, particularly right now. Ron? Yeah, I would uh, add to I think that's very true. I think um, sort of in general there's a, an aspirational quality to the online experience. We come, we come online to find some of our hopes realized or to make them realize, to, to realize them, um, and which is in itself, I suppose, a hope. But anyway, uh, I think that in the virtual space especially, um, they, the, it's, it sort of widens the, the pipeline of information coming in. And that's, and that's a plus. I mean, one of the things that happens when we go online is we lose this tremendously rich information environment that we're sort of in kind of uh, throughout, throughout the day. And, and, you know, we lose all the, the tactile information. We lose the visual cues of looking at what somebody's, uh, you know, how they're reacting to what you're saying. You're, you, we lose the, the intonation clues of voices and so forth. And the, uh, in a virtual space, you begin to at least recover a, li a little bit of that information. And, I'll, and I'll, I was community manager among... Other things, I was community manager at there for a while, and um, one of the things that, that was really fun about there was that although, I mean, we, we'd have online conferences all the time, and it's a, it's a voice-enabled environment, and, uh, and one of the problems, even online or in a conference call or whatever with the voice-enabled stuff, is that you, you, you don't have some of the cues about who's going to talk next or how that works or, you know, uh, and, and one of the things that happened in there is that um, not only was there sort of an enhanced sense of speaking to the person, because the personalities in there are sort of more or less matched to real individuals. I'm, I'm not playing an elf. This is me, you know, and um, so my voice is appropriate uh, to, to the environment and, and, and when I'm talking to people. Uh, and, and, and similarly, it gives that much more of a sense of their presence in that environment. And also, you've also got the ability to, to, to create visual cues, although not as subtle or as rich. Uh, they may well be as highly developed. I mean, people have d developed ways of, of indicating that they wish to speak next or, or some of these other things that, that are lost when you go online initially. So, so that's, that would be my uh, add-on to, to 
what John was saying, that, that, that there's, a, there's, there's more information there. There's an ability to kind of replicate more of our uh, daily experience. Todd? Uh, everything they said. <laughs> everything they said, and I think that what they said, um, you know, just to participate, yep. participate in the media, like okay. it's something that they love. You know, they love media is theirs. And, I mean, we're in a media uh, obsessed society. People are consuming more media than they ever have, and um, these kind of worlds allow people to like really, you know, participate more than they ever have been before. And I, I want to pick up on a point that that you made before, Todd, but it's also something that, that you picked up, John. Are these global spaces? Or are they like a third space or a fourth space? Well, the, 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 sociolo the sociological term of third, third place, third space, that's not home, that's not work, I think is very appropriate. Um, I think culturally we've lost third places. We've lost those meeting, those, you know, the bar where everyone knows your name, the, 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 the places where social capital is bridged. Um, I think around here somewhere the bar up there. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I think uh, I think you know the opportunity there is that you get a you have a global audience. I mean, again, you know, our brains going back to the biology, we can only deal with knowing about 150 or 200 people really. But now we have the opportunity to find the best matches for those 150, 200 or so people, and you can also by using these technologies have uh, uh, weak ties. That help you, uh, you know, live your life, and those weak ties change over time. The importance of weak ties is very is very important in these virtual environments. I think. I, I, yeah, to again sort of add on a little bit to that, that I think that's part of some of the fun is is that is that is the socially dynamic process of developing those ties and evaluating them and adding to them and discarding them or or building on them and sort of discovering how that all kind of happens with individuals. And so is there a distinction both in, in, in players, in, in player types um, and, in, and in activities between something like uh, the free-ranging spaces that, that Second Life is um, and, and, uh, and something like Laguna Beach and, say, World of Warcraft or massively multiplayer online games? I mean, there was the discussion yesterday uh, when we were talking about uh, and I can't remember what we were talking about yesterday. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about something. And we were really talking about the, the drive of narrative. <laughs> it was awesome. It, well, I love it. Video games it blew my we mind. The drive of narrative. Um, you know, and, and, and the significance of story in, in a user-generated space. And I suppose I'm interested in, in... I'd like to take some time to tease out whether there are distinctions in the way in which people participate in sites that are story-driven and sites that aren't story-driven. I got my brain hung up on when you said free range. I'm imagine like these buffalo running across the, pra the prairie or chickens, free ranging chickens, you know. It's like herding cats. <laughs> Robot chicken thing is always in my head. Um, uh, well, you know, Second Life is, is, is fundamentally a, a blank slate tabula rasa. It's, it's more, uh, you know, it's an environment within which there are games within which game, and, your, and the de definition of game can vary. So, for instance, in Second Life, there is a, uh, there's a community of people who uh, have recreated a, a 19th century England countryside environment. Not just the architecture, but the clothing, the mannerisms, the way you speak, the way the government is for this little town. And uh, people, uh, you go there, and they actually have you know, their, their own uh, zoning laws. You, if you go there as a robot, you get kicked out. If you start talking, if you say the word dude out loud, they'll be like, uh, 
you know, your, your language is not appropriate to our community, you know, and, and uh, so that could be a bit of a game, a little role-playing, you know, there are actually store owners there who actually, it's funny, you know, if, if your avatar walks around with a digital watch, you get burned at the stake practically, <laughs> but there are actually stores there that have, they make uh, watches, analog watches, I have a, po my avatar is a pocket watch, and I'm, like, the best place to go for, like, pocket watches is this place, Caledon, because it's all 19th century England, so... You know, so you have game, that's sort of, you have game within Second Life. You have, you know, other, you know, role-playing type environments. People have created these sort of, you know, these experiences where you go in Second Life and you put on a backpack and you fight monsters and so forth. You know, I think, um, you know, we, we like to experience stories. I think there's room in, for all of these things and, and all of these different platforms. There's, you know, there are times when I want to, uh, you know, sit back and sort of have a movie fed to me and just kind of, you know, Go on that little emotional roller coaster ride, or that follow that little trajectory that Shakespeare defined years and years and years ago. You know that we feel satisfied, and um, uh, you know I think there's there's room for all of them. There's and you and people like to go between you know go from I'm in a game environment where I have predefined goals and I have uh, you know a, a storyline that's beautiful, to then maybe thinking of you know trying to create their own or just or just socializing. I think it's the the fluidity of of, of it is important. Be able to go from one to the other. Uh, uh, wanted to skip back half a second on the question of, of, of global access mm. because it occurred to me that one of the things that's been really fun about, uh, again, sort of my job, which is developer relations, uh, is the, the worldwide interest in, in, in multiverse. I mean, and some of the projects that, uh, I mean, when you've got a team that coming out of the, the UAE that wants to build an MMO that's based in the Mideast, or you know, folks coming out of Thailand that want to do stuff associated with the mythology, and uh, and and I mean, really, it's it, the interest in this this sort of creativity is global, and I think that there's a, it's going to be really exciting when some of, some of this becomes accessible again on a sort of global s space. But um, to to skip back to the current question, um, I think that uh, there's. Um, I think that there's sort of this spectrum that people have talked about in a couple of different contexts between certainly uh, between sort of top-down creation, content creation, and, and bottom-up content creation. The the paradigms ranging from Disneyland to Burning Man to uh, Second Life to there, uh, both of which I think are quite quite appropriate. And it was actually Dana, I think, who, who's who's given me uh, Dana Boyd, who was up here earlier. Um, who's completely tuning me out, which is too bad. But, mm -hmm. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I expected you to look up. Uh, anyway, uh, but you, you wrote a while ago, and, and, and sort of, you know, there's been this, you, you, you wrote about sort of the, the value of, of being able to, to flex in and out of different sort of social identities and how, you know, uh, what might be appealing as a sort of more creative stance to take or, or whatever at some points might. At times, I mean, you know, Disneyland is a whole lot of fun. There's a mitigated culture. There's a very sort of strongly kind of uh, defined and clearly defined and very easy to log into culture, and that has. Uh, there was a, a, a talk on Terra Nova not too long ago about about some of the virtues of, of some of the community management at Disneyland, which I think we actually should do as a panel. But uh, the there there are certainly I think some very strong design and management aspects going into Disneyland that are very successful. Being in an environment where there are lots of laughing children is a really neat thing, and the effect it creates is a very, you know, tangible and, and meaningful one. So, so there's this whole sort of range of experiences is kind of the point I was trying to get at. Um, and uh, I think uh, similarly, too, and, 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 and uh, um, I'm not sure... 
there's, a, there's another tangent that I could go off on. I, I've also worked with the MIST community, which is doing something in Uru. It's, uh, Uru Live was their, was their MMO game. And in, in a nutshell, one of the premises was that you as an explorer have found this place that really exists in the Arizona desert. So they're really trying to blur the line between sort of where you as participant and you as player um, starts and ends. And, and I think that this is probably edging towards that sort of uh, space as well, as is Laguna Beach or, or some of the stuff in Second Life, or, or no doubt many of the applications that will uh, evolve on, on, on multiverse, of you know, how do you create this story space where, um, uh, as opposed to a simply top-down creative uh, uh, mandate or dictate, um, you, you've got participation that is, is acceptable within the broad storylines. How do you sort of create a space where people can participate and yet stay within the bounds of, of, of the sort of initial culture? And I think that that's a question that's, that's really um, uh, at least very exciting. And I, and I think that on some level there's... A, there have been very few sort of historical uh, opportunities to address that question, and the technology is what's enabling us to do that now. Um, so uh, 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 Ted Castronova's Arden project, which is also happening on, on, on multiverse speed in Shakespeare, um, the, I, I think will also sort of try to play with that as well, this whole sort of thing of how do you create a mythos that people can create their own stories and yet stay comfortably within that sort of uh, uh, story frame. So. Did you want to add something to it? Yeah, I was just going to say that, like, just building off of all that, I think that what we found with, <clears throat> you know, our first entree into this has been with Virtual Laguna Beach. And we started off with, uh, you know, for, and I know, just trust us that we are aware that, that many people feel like, oh, it's so flat. Oh, it's so this or so that. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's like it was really meant to be that way. And that is not a, that's not a post-development you know, excuse or anything like that other than to say that we went into this with, like, an assumption that, that there was a huge fan base for this show. Um, and it's a fan base who never participates in worlds like this, right? I mean, it's female teens for the most part. They're just not who you typically think of as being your virtual world. So we stacked the deck against us in terms of going in that way. Uh, but to that end, it's like we felt like that, uh, are there, what kind of games could there be that could be participated in? There, someone in the audience, uh, Todd Lowe, who's here from our integrated marketing department. Todd, where you're there. Um, I just wanted to like, talk to them about what we're working on with Secret, with PNG, you know, Secret uh, Deodorant for Girls has a its current campaign. It's about like tell us your secret, uh, tell us your, you know, tell us your favorite secrets and what those might be. So, Todd, do you want to just talk for a minute about how that came to be and like what the thinking is behind that, real quick? Do you want to just? Um, I'll get your mic. Oh, thank you. Just the, the secret one or, or the other? Stuff the secret in particular. Uh, well, the secret one, which is actually uh, <laughs> it's, it's more of a partner. Is this one? Yeah. Former partner uh, Alexis Rodriguez's uh, project. Basically, they, they had a campaign running this fall that was, that was all about uh, was all about empowering women through giving them forums to, to express uh, their secrets, things about themselves that, that they maybe, you know, uh, they, they feel that uh, they didn't have a form to express otherwise, let's put it that way. And they had an animated campaign. I know some of you caught uh, some of the TV spots that ran this fall. So we, it was kind of a, a literal lift that we did where we, we, gave, uh, we created a form inside Virtual Laguna where Virtual Lagoonans could express their secrets and talk about things that they had on their mind that they otherwise felt they didn't have a, a place to express. And so we're using Machinima, we're creating these opportunities for people to come in and record their secrets and they'll be, uh, they'll be evaluated by 
Team VLB in secret, and uh, and then we're going to have an event at the end of at the end of a I don't know a several week process. I think it's four weeks, in which uh, in which the best of uh, of the confessions are kind of played throughout the world, and and the and the and the as sort of as a, as a form of entertainment, and in various sort of social settings and uh, on private screens and public screens, which exist all throughout Virtual Laguna, and uh, and then the best one will be will be. Uh, selected and the, the winner will receive, you know, some virtual Laguna credits and a number of other uh, rewards. So that's basically how the program works. How so that, that, being, that ability to be able to kind of be showcased in a big way, you know, before everyone else, it, there's the game of being able to get to that point, and then the the celebration of that effort of your of what it is that you've invested in, uh, not only plays itself out well for that that advertiser, of course, which is probably you know further down the rank in terms of hierarchy, but certainly for the player. For the user to be able to do that is something that's new and has not really been explored a lot. Mm. It felt like it was perfectly fitting within the kind of MTV landscape. Mm. And it was so, fortunate in that, in that their campaign was also rooted in, 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 in animation, and so the, the, right. the relationship between the franchises made a lot of sense. Yep. And so in the pricey for this, for this panel, we, we talk about these spaces as being potentially um, sites where, where we can explore thought experiments, where we can think through hypothetical situations and, and, and try things out. Um, is, are those sorts of activities what these spaces offer, particularly corporations, as much as they offer you know, people the opportunity to fly around and build contraptions and, and stuff? Are these spaces where, where things can be experimented with um, that, that can then be taken back to the real world, whether it's in terms of relationship? Or are the sorts of things that are out-of-the-box thinking being done in these spaces actually real relationships themselves so they don't need necessarily to be... Uh, an experimental side that is then related back to some sort of external real world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what's, hap what's happening, um, you know, we, again, thinking of the biology of the brain, you know, the, the concept, yeah. concept that, we're, uh, that we are a single identity is an illusion. It's our, our, you know, their brain is a, it's more of, a, of an orchestra of simultaneous conversations, you know, interacting with each other. You know, we're, we're different when we're at work versus with our family versus with friends. There are things that we like to do at certain times that we don't want to do at other times. And so I think what online, you know, environments are showing are uh, how naturally fluid our brains are at, at, at exploring different facets of our personality. So um, I think... You know, the people in these environments are extremely real, even if they're sort of explore. You know, even if they don't seem, even if they seem a little weird. You know, it's like, wait, you're a you're a forty year old housewife, and yet your avatar in Second Life is a giant dragon, and you make rocket ships or something. And and I, but there's, there's a beauty to that. There's a there's a beauty of people exploring different facets of themselves. I think so. Uh, I think you should treat all of the you know, unless there's an unless there's a uh, Unless everything is operating within a framework of a clear sort of role-playing, like this is a game, I am pretending to do this, this isn't really me. I think we should assume all of these interactions are real and, uh, and you, know, you can take things back to the real world if you want and, and treat them as real in these virtual environments. I I'd actually take it the next step further and extend that, really, um, which you can, you know, agree with or not. Um, <laughs> but but to, the, to the extent that, that, that on some level that the exercise, I mean, it was... Uh, uh, the, the mention of simulations with respect to gameplay and certainly applies with virtual worlds, 
that, that's, that simulations are learning experiences and that those learning experiences are a large part of why we do these things. And uh, those kinds of learnings can take the place from you know, simple challenges and, and confidence building to uh, social skills. And, and uh, to, 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 to your, your housewife, um, when she goes into World of Warcraft, um, might well be running one of the major raiding guilds because a, lot of, a very high percentage of the, uh, of the guild leadership, it turns out, comes from that kind of a background. They've got very strong social skills. They're able to, to manage the time and, and sort of difficult social relationships, often involving teens and, and, and so forth. So they, that tends to translate very well into these online environments. And I would argue, I mean, you know, uh, on some level, you can, you can say that we take those skills back out of that kind of a world. Um, and in another sense, you can say that it's the same stuff, you know, that, that as far as the, the, the participants concerned, there's a certain sense in which we're not differentiating these experiences. There's yeah. no switch that says, you know, yeah. that's real and that's not. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's, there's a seamlessness there. And, and I think that's becoming uh, more and more obvious, perhaps. There's, there's some sense like that. We're developing sort of a richer interrelation of these two sorts of facets of our lives, but, but that they're definitely sort of a continuum that's, um, as you say, it's, it's all part of the same sort of, you know, person. Um, one, one group I, I worked with um, were a group of uh, people dealing with Asperger's syndrome, mm-hmm. which, is a, uh, which is a condition where, well, basically, it's uh, the, the, uh, the instinctive, you know, the instincts we have for how to engage in a, with people in a social situation, things like maintaining proper body distance, you know, am I bugging you? you know, <laughs> things, little things like that, like knowing how, when to make and break eye contact, when, knowing how to walk into a room and, and sort of grok the, the, the social situation. Um, people with Asperger's syndrome have, um, uh, it doesn't come instinctively to them, and, and it's, it, it's terrifying for them to, to, to interact with people in a social way, in a physical world. Um, <laughs> At the same time, they can they can learn through practice. They can they can yeah. they can. It it just requires learning, and yet at the same time, it's terrifying, which is tragic. So, um, I'd worked with people in my work with online patient communities at at uh, Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and uh, the, I had a large group group of uh, people with Asperger's syndrome who loved using online bulletin boards and chat rooms and forums because they wanted to become more social. They didn't want to be terrified at home, sitting alone. And they were sort of dipping their toes in the water. And uh, so what I did was I brought uh, a group of them into Second Life, and I gave them uh, access to an island which was private, where they could control who was there, where they could create in a three-dimensional environment their ideal ideal sort of social setting. You know, some people created gardens. One person recreated a restaurant that he really liked in in Oregon and, and then started building boats and then suddenly realized he was really good at making boats and then suddenly started selling boats and was like, wow, I'm... Now I'm in business. What happened? You know? <laughs> um, and they use this environment and what, and to practice their socialization skills in, in, in a simulation. And what hap- the result of that was, was twofold. One, people told me um, they really felt like they were learning how to do it. They said, this, this is kind of like being in a flight simulator, you know, and I'm not too terrified of crashing into the ground, uh, and, I'm, and I'm learning how to do it. And, but the biggest thing for them was confidence. They, they felt they achieved something. They were, uh, they felt in the, you know, they, they said uh, to me, that, you know, go, now when I go into the physical world, I don't, I'm still, it's still scary, but you know, I know I can do it. I, 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 I took the initiative and did it in this virtual sense, and so it's important to them.
That's one thing to add about yeah. test betting, uh, marketing in, inside any of these platforms. And it's um, that you know your testing products. Is, it's no longer is, it's as soon. I don't think it's going to become testing products in here. But it's really figuring out how to market to the actual people. They're living out their lives in here for hours and hours. You know, they spend a lot of people spend more time in, in these, or they will. You know, than they do. You know, consuming products outside the world in in the real world. That uh, that it's figuring out how to test products, uh, how to make real products um, in, inside any of these platforms, uh, treating them like real places more than uh, you know, to seeing what happens. But 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 figuring out how to how to how to how to make it more enjoyable for the for the users and complementing their behavior in, inside there, um, because. You know, and as MTV, we see them. You know, it's, it's they're simply new places that new hangout spots. They're the new, you know, the hottest places. You know, um, new, the new clubs. We can find people, and they're and they're right here. They're accessible anywhere in the world to us. Uh, um, so we can find. We can just take take them out um, and put them put them on different screens. We can you know we can treat them like the real people, and uh, and that's how you know it's it's not really testing products, but it's. You know, treating them like real people, like like you would, you know, go out to the, to the world and test products. Yeah, I'd say the best way to fail is to be going into it and looking at it as a petri dish. Right, exactly. You need to engage in conversations with these people and, and these environments and, and realize that there are very real social social fabrics to them. Uh, I should say also that, that that's actually one of the, uh, uh, I wasn't one of the original founders of Multiverse, but that was one of the guiding visions was that, that especially in, in sort of the greater uh, creation uh, as, as a concept of, of some of these worlds, of, of creating MMOGs or virtual worlds or whatever, that there was such, became such a huge barrier. I mean, World of Warcraft especially uh, has set a, you know, a 50 to $60 million price tag on the whole enterprise. And, and, um, and so there was, there was both sort of, uh, you know, it was a barrier that, that independent teams simply couldn't cross, was, was not possible. And secondarily, it also made it imperative for the, the virtual worlds that did launch to be successful, which uh, meant you know, severe constraints on what was likely to be successful and a, a lot of replication of the same sort of stuff. Now, there are exceptions to that. Eve Online is one, for example. Uh, 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 to some extent, Second Life is as well. Though, uh, but, um, uh, but especially in the, in, in the venue sort of, of, of game creation, uh, you know, with the kind of uh, rule sets and dynamics and physicalities and, and uh, thematic consistencies of uh, some of the game worlds, um, there was no way for indies to do it. There was no way for academic, there was no way for Ted Castronova to build an Arden to experiment with sort of some of the economic theories that he's worked on or some of the sociological stuff he wants to do or, or, or some of the immersive stuff. Um, there was simply no way. And that was, that was one of the things that Multiverses was, was designed to be able to afford, to, to create sort of a plethora, uh, not only of sort of, uh, emergent gameplay within worlds, but on some level, emergent development of worlds, of people sort of experimenting with these tools to create who knows what. Uh, yeah, and, and, and at least so far, it seems like people are, are sort of really excited by that possibility and are, are kind of taking great, yeah. No, segue. There's a progression in this discussion. Um, there was a, an article in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review recently um, that described the value of marketing to avatars, suggesting that, among other things, advertising and branding has historically been about tapping people's fantasies and that the avatar is an embodiment of those fantasies. So the question then is, is Henry his avatar? Um, or is the avatar like a, a, a mirror reflection, accurate in, in some ways and, uh, and distorted in others? So are there merits or, or benefits to, to marketing to avatars? 
Are avatars accurate representations of the people that we are? Are they some link? They can be. <clears throat> it depends. It depends on, I mean, to the point of the 40-year-old woman who's the oh, that is dragon. Mm -hmm. I mean, that may be a secret fantasy of hers, or maybe people call her the dragon, or she perceives herself that way with her kids. Or she may want to be that way. So there are, that's where so much of the work still needs to be done around, like, better understanding, like, what's the motivation behind why the dragon is your avatar? Whoa. Uh, because if you understand that, then you can market to that. In a, in a more literal kind of way and not try to be, you know, coding things to them. Because, of course, the person who has that as their avatar forgets that they are also representing themselves as a dragon, right? And that they aren't the same person. So or it's a, a giant robot. Like, like, yeah, you know, you want to play to that. Yeah, well, especially, I think, with, with VLB, too. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's a, a very real sort of, uh, you know, connection. And, and, and I don't know that you can make any sort of... Uh, um, absolute definition of, of, I mean, I think all of this stuff, one of the things that I've sort of been coming back to time and time again throughout this, this conference has been sort of um, the sort of emerging um, change in uh, relationships of content creators or marketers towards their consumers. And, 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 and it, it, people, I mean, I, we're moving out of a a time when there were definitive answers. And I think it's all much, it's all becoming a flux and it's all becoming, a, you know, that that sort of dynamic interaction is, is the way it's going to work and that, that, that there won't be a solution that, that applies across the board, but in fact that it will, it will always be sort of a negotiation between the, the, the content provider and their, and their uh, community. But to get back to VLP, I mean, uh, uh, you know, sort of clearly this is an aspiration of, on the part especially of some of these teens who are involved in the brand and to be involved with that on a sort of more, you know, uh, extensive level and interactive level, I think, is, it offers tremendous opportunities for, for marketers. I, th I think it's also important to give people uh, freedom. I mean, here's, for instance, here's a, here's a region in Second Life we're looking at right now. It's actually uh, called Dublin. And it's, uh, there are different parts of Dublin that are actually accurately recreated here. And this is all done just, you know, using Second Life as a platform. And yet at the same time, when you go into the bar, where I am right mm -hmm. now, um, you know, you see people who look like people, and then you see, oh, giant robot, right? Um, so, you know, here's an example where people are coming around, and uh, I think they're starting to, you know, they're just hanging out. They're actually waiting. To, there are a lot of live musicians who play here, actually. They have a real culture of lots of live musicians performing on Dublin. And, um, you know, so you have this, again, this fluidity of, 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 of people, you know, representing themselves however they want to represent. You know, it's totally normal to see right. a giant robot here hanging out. Um, so I, and people, people like this. And now the giant robot's sitting at the bar. I wonder what he's going to order, you know, oil or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, here's an example where this is all created by the, by the residents, by the users again. You know, this is all, you know, someone created this traditional Irish bar. They actually have, you know, announcements on the front here showing when these live musicians are going to be performing. Um, you, know, you give people the tools to create whatever they want to create, and what they end up creating is interesting. It's not something that's completely bizarre. You know, I am an energy beam in non-Euclidean space floating around. At the same time, it's not completely mundane. It's somewhere smack in the middle. It's sort of this, uh, you know, you have, that's what people seem to, just based on, you know, when we created Second Life, it was just a blank slate. There was ground and there was sky, and that was it. And what people have done are recreate things like, you know, bars that look realistic, streets that look like streets, yet at the same time adding a dash of, of uh, this sort of through the looking glass. And, and that's, that's what people are making. 
And those are the environments they're creating. So I think that's important in terms of if you're thinking about designing an experience for people to, uh, to look at what they're, do, what they're designing themselves. Okay. I think this might be a chance to walk through um, the Laguna Beach project, partly as contrast, but partly also to look at, at, at what these things might actually have in common. Um, I'll just flip you over to... Uh, yeah. Sweat that press. <coughs> press <a> button. <laughs> so, Eric, do you want to talk us through... Todd, do you want to talk us through this project? I'll let Eric do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, um, the resolution's a little weird. I can't seem to find the, the menu bar. Um, I don't know if that's a problem. I'm not sure what the, why that's happening. But, um, so, Lagoon Beach, um, it was uh, wildly successful. I couldn't talk it through kind of the, the show. Uh, for It was a wildly successful show. Um, uh, one more, sorry. I, don't know why. I can't seem to see the UI once this happens, but... It's down there. Might be the resolution on your screen. Everyone who does a presentation live like this should get major props because it's like without a net <laughs> being in the circus. That's okay. What have demonstrated exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so that's going to be a little issue. But um, so we created uh, with. It's 3D virtual. We literally went to the city of Laguna Beach, uh, which I actually just came back from yesterday, um, um, and we we took the we, the show producers who've been going doing the show for about two two years. Um, to take take ten kids, about twelve kids from Laguna Beach. Uh, they they and they follow their lives around their their dramas and they they. Um, and how they live in the city of Laguna Beach and around Laguna Beach. Their high school stories, their drama, high school, high school stories that we all go through. We decided to take the, the show Laguna Beach um, that's, that's seen on TV and put it into the, and make a virtual world out of it. So it, while it's not exactly the exact city, it's um, pretty much the exact show. It's uh, the majority of the places that you see in the show are in the world. You can go eat with the, eat where the you can go sit where the you know the cast. Cast um, goes to the beach. There's you can go see the places that go to the beach in the show. There's the restaurants. There's shops. There's every every place that you see in the show. Um, we pr we try to try to map out. Um, so when we started um, in the beginning of season three, we we worked with the production team to kind of plan out what the what the season was going to be like. You know, they sh they shoot it beforehand. So. Uh, um, so and so there's these ten pole events: spring break, prom. Every every high schooler goes through. So we decided to build it out. We built the city out, and then we have when the cast goes to spring break in the second episode, we op we unlocked a big spring break location, and we had week long of events um, that you could you know you had bikini contests, you could go um, you can go racing, you can go buggy racing, you can you know um, there's a lot lots of activities. There's king and queen of spring break. Um, and and so so when the cast so when you would see the cat they would promote the show the spring break on TV and they would um, um, then they would come they would come in here and they'd watch it watch it on TV and then they'd actually come in here and actually go to spring break they would they would see the cast and they would actually you know live live the live the Laguna life is what we called it um, and people did it was it was unbelievable how how quickly they. You know, once they saw what the you know what the the the, the themed event was, uh, and it's a little slow. I apologize, but uh, um, they 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 gravitated towards it. They already had the had the reference points, and they gravitated. So, so I'm standing here. Right, this is a boardwalk that we kind of created for. We call it the first user experience because it's these kids. Um, they weren't involved in 
were, uh, they're barely video game players. They might have some experience in The Sims. They're, they're online. They definitely aren't in a 3D, massively online world. They've, they barely, um, they didn't really know what it was. So we created this, the, fir the first user experience to, to get them through, to the basic tenements of how to walk, how to talk, how to, how to chat, how to, how to shop. And those were, the, those were the three things, basic things in Laguna Beach you have to do, uh, the three basic things in virtual Laguna Beach you have to do. Uh, so, so right now there's, and there's, there's still people. Um, you know, this is, and it's still an attractive place. It's where everyone comes to, to meet up. And there's... It was in, this, in the testing that we had to, like, uh, it was interesting. Because in the, in the research for this, you know, in many worlds, it's like there's... There, you, you deal with a, a uh, respondent base who's much further evolved, much more uh, familiar, and in fact teaching developers how to do things. And in this world, it's like we had people teaching us how to do things, but we had to like start completely fresh. And so the whole thing of like, as Eric said, teaching them how to walk and how to talk, um, we literally had to do that. So it's like it was something that, as we say, you know, when Eric's saying they actually did it, or like it's you know, unbelievable that they did it, some of it was that. It was just the shock that like this was actually happening because these are people who just didn't normally do it. As I said, we sacked the deck against us, but we felt like if we did that, we'd learn more by actually starting with a clean slate and being somewhat naive going into it. Uh, and of course, it was pretty much, you know, we had advertisers who were connected with it, but they, they're not, they were doing this as a test. This has always been a test for us. Uh, it took off because a lot of media outlets were interested in what it was that we were doing, and so it made... We're no doubt that it made the, the front page of the business section in the New York Times not by our doing. Uh, we did not engineer that. We were not trying to make that kind of thing happen. It got attention mostly because there were not any other media properties doing it, properties doing these kinds of things. So um, some of that is where where it may seem like, oh, well, you're making all this hype, but then it's like, what's the experience like for people who are much more involved in this world? But we're just pleased that they're actually, uh, you know, that they are going to it more more frequently, that they're using it in... in you know, turn, turn, taking it and using it in ways that they want to use it. Some of the ways that we try to enable it to happen, actually. Right. Um, so how, how are they using it in ways that you didn't expect? Um, well, they, I mean, ways that we didn't expect. It says we hadn't, I mean, they, they throw their own events. They, they formed, they really, we really, when we first started it, it was go to spring break. You will have, a, we'll tie it to the show. They'll do, they'll play out the show. Um, it quickly became that they, Form their own communities. They threw their own events. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to do their own stuff in there. Um, and they and they and they became their own friends. They, you know, they as much as they loved going to spring break, it was it was a, it was a lot of times, uh, you know. So how did they? How did they sort of like? If I wanted to throw my own event in this environment, what do, do they have the ability to create their own events that other people can oh, discover? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You can pretty much throw. There's there's lots of clubs, and we pretty much uh, blocked out, you know, weekend nights and weekends, and said, hey. You can host your own event. You can promote it yourselves, and they can, you can you can take you can take it. Um, and they and they did, and they they do it. There's been birthday parties. You know, in the first four weeks, there was a birthday party for them. There's engagement party. You know, there's a uh, people. You know, people having relationships. We say go on dates. We thought it would be a little more game like. You know, and and it is, but they they definitely. Um, uh, you know, uh, make it their own very, they made it their own very quickly, um, for sure. And it's, um, yeah. well, I don't think we expected it to be as much, I mean, even though we'd say you can create your own events, right. you can have your own parties, whatever, just because it's a world where people aren't used to doing that kind of thing, yeah. that they're so quickly warm to it, yeah. and then promote it to other people and get other people to come to it. Right. 
And, yeah. So that was a shock for us, for you guys, I'm sure. It's like, yeah, that's what it's about. But, like, you know, we're <laughs> just learning. Well, I mean, it's, it's good from, from your perspective to, uh, uh, I mean, you want to immerse people in this world that you've created, essentially. Right. Uh, you're, you're a theme of it. Uh, the more, I think, uh, ownership you can give to them while still retaining the theme is, is critical. So it sounds like it's, it's working out well. Yeah. Yeah. As you can imagine, at, sorry, as you can imagine at MTV, like giving up that control. <laughs> something that, like, How it must be easy for you guys, <laughs> right? Just let it free. It's like in research, you know, for us, at least, where I said, it's like it's about, we're constantly preaching that. But of course, yeah. you know, the creators are very, you know, very close to the ways that they're doing. It's very, there's a heartfelt kind of connection with it. But that, that transformation is like something that's it's our biggest one of our biggest challenges is just the giving up control. Good for I think you. That's yeah, good. I, I, I totally agree. I think that, and and I mean even more, I think that especially the audience that you're looking for, which is the young audience, is sort of much more flexible in terms of how they can appreciate a brand than a lot of the sort of the, uh, our generation, our understanding of, of what brand means and how you treat it and how you know mm. you, you hold it as sacrosanct. And, and mm. the the, uh, the younger generations are a lot more media savvy. Mm. They're, they're something they can they can play with something they appreciate in much wilder ways and still be appreciative. Mm. You know, that, mm. that looks absolutely terrible for us. No, I think it's a great thing. The other uh, the other thing I was going to say is that one of the stuff that again when I was there at least uh, I really enjoyed was and I don't know if you've seen it yet. It's Machinima. There were uh, people creating, you know, stories and, and uh, making movies and so forth in, in, in there. And I well, don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, we'll we've, yet. we've done a lot of machine. Uh, we have, we have, we've created videos for, you know, what well, have the users created? Yeah, the users. Uh, there's been a few users. Uh, we, I mean, we haven't ramped it up. I mean, so much we haven't, you know, we haven't really brought it. To, you know, we. Well, there's no stopping them if they want to do right, it. They'll no, just run course, fraps uh, and there you go. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but also, um, yeah. Um, so. I think there has been some, and we we absolutely want to promote it. You know, we we love we're big fans, and we put it. We I shot a piece, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Where we put Vanessa, our TRL VJ, inside Virtual Laguna Beach. She she voiced it over, and she tossed to a video. You know, we aired it on TRL. Like she was hosting from inside TRL, from inside VLB on TRL. Um, so um, and and um, it's a it's a great new it's a great it's an unbelievable new video medium. You know, and that. Obviously, we're being a video you know, media company. We, can, we have a lot of screens. That we would, um, you know, we could we could see it on. It's it's great. And the, and the 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 characters in in VLB, they you know they respond very well. It, it looks it looks beautiful. That that was one of the things that we we spent a lot of time with the Laguna Beach, the production crew of Laguna mm -hmm. Beach. And it's wireless and it's not loading in perfectly right now. Um, but we spent a lot of team, time with Laguna Beach production, the the people on the show, making sure that they were. They, that they, um, you know, we, that we accurately reflected not only the town, but the actual show. The show is, you know, a beautifully shot reality television. It's reality TV taken to, um, it looks like a movie. It looks beautiful. And we, made, we wanted to make sure that it's maintained that, that, that quality. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm just finding Laguna Beach surfing stuff on YouTube right, right. right now. <laughs> People are creating essentially their just, little okay, videos of machine. Right. Just before we go to questions, I, I want to ask, what's, cool. I mean, as a transmedia property, then, what are the challenges of creating a virtual world based on a reality series? Oh, they're huge. Mm. They're huge. I mean, it's like we start, you know, some of this stuff has to start in a very stealth kind of way. Yeah. Right? You just don't announce it. And every, because, of course, in the company, not everyone is familiar with these worlds. So, you know, some of this started as somewhat of a skunk works kind of project that needed to, like, because the system couldn't take it. The, you know, the, the process that is in place, it's like, 
something like this would slow, it would be like sludge-like because it's like you have to get approvals from so many different people. And, and so you have to like get approvals at a, at a high level and then like at certain other levels where you can like get people who are actually going to be embrace it. So you want to identify people across the organization who are amenable to these kinds of things, who can help you further it along, even if they may not be in positions of direct power or influence or authority. So that's a big part of what this is about. It's yeah. like trying to help uh, usher it through in the, in the most efficient way possible because, of course, the world is changing so quickly and we have brands like we have sitting here who are like you know, leaps and bounds about, ahead of all of us. And we're just trying to like play in their world and like to play some of that kind of to offer our viewers uh, experiences like that as well. And so speaking about playing in their world, John, is, is, is Second Life a platform that will be amenable to the creation of a transmedia space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it already is, really. Yeah. I think it's, it's an environment where um, you can, you know, buy an island and create your own vision. I mean, like the Dublin region that I'm still hanging out with, more people are getting here. It's getting crowded. I got in before the cover charge, so it's cool. <laughs> uh, I'm just planted at the bar. I think it's very doable. I think it's, I think it's very, um, uh, uh, oh, it's flicking over to, yeah, I'm just sitting there. Just more robots. No, there now there are people are starting to actually buy drinks now. There's a guy drinking there. <laughs> oh, check out those jeans! Look at that. I mean, someone oh, no. made somebody made these. I don't know. It's just cool. Um, I think it's very doable. I think it's you know in Second Life you could create a, a uh, an island and set up set up an island, make it as open as or as closed as you want. Mm. It's actually one thing working with educators. You know, they, it's interesting. The first wave coming in, like I want to create a space in Second Life, but I don't want any giant robots coming by. I want it to be like a classroom in the real world. And this is actually a typical thing when you're exposed to a new medium. I think you, know, you, you recreate what you've done in other mediums beforehand. The first movies were basically uh, sticking a camera on a pole and filming a stage where a play was happening. This is the concept of the jump cutter. I can film from multiple cameras at the same time and I'll, let's do this thing, I'll call it post-production, where I cut it up and that was all invented, you know. Um, really? It, all had to, you know, it, it was just totally invented. And, and um, I think... You know, these in oh, there's a naked guy walking by in the bar. <laughs> Speaking of, yeah, so, but it's, it, this is, he's drinking Jack Daniels. It's funny. Uh, yeah, he's got, he's, oh, there he goes. Oh, there goes. <laughs> a lot of it, people are just having, I don't know if he's drunk in the real world, who knows. <laughs> but this is a mature Irish pub, and I'm sure he'll get home safely. People will take care of him. Um, so you can create experiences as open or as closed as you want. So like educators coming in can create an island where only their students and faculty have access to it. Or they, they can open it up whenever they want to, uh, whenever they uh, feel like it, by just you know, controlling the permissions like that. So I think, I think it's very doable. You just have to define for yourself you know, how, much, how tightly do you need to hold on to everything. I think that's the trick. I mean, I think um, if, you give people, if you give people the tools... Oh, he's behind the bar now. He's still got Jack Daniels there. Give people the tools. Um, let's not look at him. <laughs> to do things, they'll just run with it. So, for instance, in, in this virtual Dublin, you know, people all create themed, think, things themed on Ireland and so forth. And uh, the most important thing I think you can do, though, is just realize that these environments are full of real people, that yep. they're not just consumers also, that they're, they're remixers and so And forth. so, if they're full of real people... Sorry, Ron? No, I was going to say, uh, yeah, that, that, that I think Multiverse is trying to do something similar, although we're trying to, I mean, our, let's see, um, the client will enable access to, to a, a variety of different worlds, and those worlds will be built by people who are, you know, either indies or consumers or something, and the, the tool set will enable sort of, uh, you know, a very rich, creative 
you know, opportunity for people who want to pick them up and, and play with them, and that, that that's going to create sort of uh, uh, similarly uh, a, a, a tremendous array of, of um, amazing opportunities for experiences, that new interactive, you know, forms. And again, I think on some level there's a, what I think we'll see is, uh, is a culture developed that encourages, you know, even sort of wilder experimentation until there are new, new paradigms emerge and, and that that's going to be hugely uh, exciting. And what happens to those real people when these experiments end? I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in uh, Ron, you, you're working with, with indies and startups, you know, and, and they fall over every day, with all due respect to anyone who might be an indie or a startup. Um, Hopefully, no, we're not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and John's talking about, you know, the, the, the great potential for people to experiment and, and create different sorts of spaces. And then we've got this bustling community over here that is, that is based around a television program that I presume could face cancellation. And so, I mean, what happens when these, when these things come to an end? Mm, go first. Well, actually, I, I can answer that a couple of different ways. The, the, the quick answer is that I think that there's um, uh, that, as I was saying earlier, it, it's becoming more and more of a dynam dynamic world. Mm -hmm. And that they, so lots of things will happen, basically. I mean, some will fold, some will take those learnings and, and progress. The, the, the thing that just occurred to me, though, was the, the other sort of hat I've, uh, I've worn of late uh, working with GameTap, uh, which is reviving the Uru Live community. And, and, and I wanted to bring this up at some point because uh, Mist, the, in case you're not aware, uh, Uru Live was the uh, MMOG based on the Mist brand and the Mist canon. And Cyan Worlds had created this, uh, this whole sort of uh, interactive space. Again, sort of the, the, the premise was that you were an explorer who had found this denicultural uh, space in Arizona and it led to exploration of different worlds. It was originally launched with Ubisoft as the publisher. It never quite got out the door. And what happened, this is the interesting part, what happened is that uh, having closed down, the user community uh, who had, for a variety of reasons, become so passionate about this experience immediately began trying to uh, reverse engineer the servers. Uh, so that they could continue it. And among other things, they went to both there and Second Life and created colonies of, of Uru uh, uh, expatriates, as Celia Pierce puts it, the, the Uru diaspora. Um, but, um, no, and it's fascinating, it's a dissertation topic, it's fascinating stuff. But um, the, uh, the, 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 what, what, what eventually happened was that Cyan caught wind of this, this effort, uh, released a, a publicly accessible version of the server so that the users were able to continue to ex experiment even though the service had closed down. At some point, this came to the attention of, of the GameTap folks who are now relaunching it in part because of uh, the potential for creating an episodic content uh, vehicle uh, as part of the, the GameTap service um, and, and also in part because the community Here's the point. Because the community had staked out such a tremendously loyal uh, 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 set of activities around this brand, and we're still continuing to, to experience this thing, or want to experience it as much as possible. So there's a whole range of things that can happen next, one of which is that the, that the fan community revives the, the, the property uh, itself. Todd, Fascinating what stuff. If, Very exciting. What happens if Laguna Beach is cancelled? And it will. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Um, Eventually. We hope not. That's the first time I've heard that. Um, no, I, I think that like we have, we now, for us, and I've learned this a lot with working with Henry, that um, the, the thing that you just talked about, where 
where um, fans, you know, continue it on, like continue to keep it alive. And, like, there's so many examples of how that's actually happened. We have great hope and faith that that would happen here. Um, that we have fans, you know, I've said ever since I, like, started working with you guys that one of the things that we've noticed is that media brands do such a terrible job of, like, allow, in, enabling fans to be able to continue their love affair with uh, the media that they're involved with and with the franchise. And, but now we have new ways of allowing that to be able to happen, to, for that not to happen any longer. So, <clears throat> you know, if it does cancel, I think that, like, there are enough people who are, uh, we put enough resources into this to allow this franchise to keep, keep itself alive. And then who knows where it goes from there. I mean, it's like, it, this can turn it into a whole other, you know, ecosystem of word I was promising I wouldn't say today. But <laughs> to a whole other kind of, like, realm that I think is, like, really exciting. And so it's, we've only just begun to get to that point, so... Okay. Is there a, a question over here? Yeah. Um, there was some discussion uh, yesterday of virtual economies. And uh, one story that I saw recently was the Joint Economic Committee looking into ways uh, whether and how to tax transactions in Second Life. I saw an article in The Age, I don't know how accurate it is, that Australia's uh, tax authority is actually interested not just in taxing the sort of in exchange between virtual currency and real currency, but actual transactions completely within Second Life. I don't know how accurate that is. So I just wanted to know both your reaction to that general issue and also what exactly is going on with Australia, because it was a vague article. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, you know, if people... Right now, the government is interested when they, get, when they see you getting cash from somewhere. So, you know... Uh, you know, people make a living buying and selling Beanie Babies on eBay. Right, and when they get the checks, then they cut. They that's taxable income. It's the same way with Second Life. When people, you know, get U.S. dollars having after selling Linden dollars, then that's a taxable event. And there you go. I think it's funny that it's interesting that you know the you know governments and are interested now of like you know somehow taxing the virtual transaction. So does that mean they're going to also look for people trading you know Beanie Babies for action figures on eBay or something? I don't know. It's it's. Um, uh, it's this is all very muddy waters. I think um, you know to to try to figure out how to tax. You know, I mean, if you could argue, I mean, you could argue that for every MMO, you know, in World of Warcraft, every time I kill a boar, you know, I, I'm paying tax <laughs> for the yeah. gold because there's a value because the government assigns a value to it. I don't I don't know how it's going to work out. Uh, let me jump in if I can a second because I think. If I'm tracking this correctly, what just happened online is really interesting and touches on this topic and another one uh, in that one of the things that at least I've seen with, with the team dynamics is giving stuff. They're, they're much more collaborative sort of and, and will share material or at least digital material much more freely. And I think that's what just happened there. Yeah, Somebody offered that to you. Yeah, someone gave me a, my own hoverboard. Completely sort of un... un <laughs> I mean, yeah, teens are also I, apparently sort of much more consistently comfortable asking for material support from their pals or just sort of from a chance acquaintances. And this is something that's much more acceptable in that culture than it is in, in the cultural sort of expectations of older folks. So there's a, there's a tension there. But, but certainly it, it relates back to this whole question of taxation. So when somebody comes up to you and says, here's this digital thing, should that be taxed? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think that on some level there are, uh, this is another situation where the old paradigms are, are, are becoming less and less sort of applicable and... and We'll need to figure out new ways of doing it. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No. Of course, as a media company, too, the other problem is teens are also like, hey, give me that song. 
All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, there's there's just gotten into that yet. Yeah. Oh yeah, but yeah. How do you deal that, with that? that? This gets into a whole sort of economy of abundance stuff, which the digital age is as kind of. Well, it's a gift raised. economy. Yeah, that's what happens. It's evolved into that. Well, yeah, but uh, but but too, I mean, uh, the 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 sort of the the, the scarcity of goods which existed bet- before the digital age, you know, is is no longer really. Is, is becoming less and less of a dominant paradigm. So, I mean, you're, you're getting sort of, you're getting a lot of value which does not have the restriction of having to have been materially produced with a limited resource. And, and a lot of the value in the economy is coming out of that stuff. And, and, I mean, gift economy is certainly one aspect of it or, 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 or one way to, to sort of approach it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it sort of raises really huge questions about how our culture um, mitigates a lot of our relationships with each other, and it's certainly in terms of production of value. And I, I, I might even further add a footnote. One of the things that I've been sort of uh, really happy about lately, the number of conferences lately, doesn't it seem like they've sprouted up like mushrooms? You know, there are all sorts of conferences going on. And, and I think it's sort of emblematic of a couple of things, one of which is the ease with which we can organize such things because of the online communications media, which we now have, to say, okay, let's all gather here. And it's fairly easy to do. And, and, and Josh can send out emails saying, okay, well, let's talk about this, perhaps, or something. And that's all, all meaningful and helps these things occur. The other part being that there's sort of an abundance economy of intellectual property. That as we're here sharing all these ideas quite freely, you know, these are, these are, this is a very different sort of model than the previously uh, the existing one of, of reserving your IP so that you'll have a competitive advantage over your or, uh, other companies. And, 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 and so we're getting this, you know, people are acting, watching the cultural, sort of the, the, the cultural dynamics evolve, um, which I think is another one of the things that the online culture does is it, 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 it's accelerating the pace with which cultural adaptations take, take form and, and, and get adopted. But uh, the, and again, these are dynamics that have always been there, but we've now got these means to, to, to communicate them much more readily. But um, the, uh, so there's these huge sort of shifts in how we're going about doing things, in part because of the technology and in part because of how we're beginning to be able to connect in ways that we couldn't before. Yeah. Just to build on that, now this wasn't your question, but it's very interesting. <laughs> I'm having fun talking about it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, uh, especially with the IP thing. You know, in within our company, where you know there are certain people, and many of them are here today, uh, and a few others who wanted to come but couldn't make it, who <clears throat> actively go after this exchange of intellectual property and who will pay attention to it. Meanwhile, the mass, the bulk of the company, is not that way. So, you know, it's a very interesting dynamic just watching how we integrate that, that kind of advanced thinking, uh, new concepts, new explorations into, like, you know, the, the machine that has become what MTV Networks is or what our brands are. And it ends up having to be these kind of skunk works things or some other kind of one-offs that then become something that other people look to, like, oh, well, let's have a little bit of that. I want some of that. And, you know, it's, it's all in, like, who's getting more attention. And sometimes it comes by way of revenue. Mm-hmm. If an advertiser is attached to it, or there's some type of affiliate who's looking to, to further something along and they're willing to pay, that's what sometimes can move ahead. And um, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic where, where you're look, looking at putting the user in control. But at the same time, it's like it's almost like the squeeze of the user and the revenue where the revenue is coming from that's making a lot of these things happen. Sir, um, yeah, hi, um, Mike Dudek. I'm a bachelor student at the Ontario College of Art and Design and I'd just like to ask the panel to talk about the idea of multitasking and how the younger generation seems to 
and be able to handle more and more as time goes on. At the same time, I'll use my sister, for example. She you know, updates our MySpace, listens to music, reads books, and talks on the phone, and is able to handle 10 things at once, where you know, I'm six years older and I <laughs> can't do any of that at the same time. So, I mean, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that progress? I don't know. Especially, I mean, Chris Braden here next to me, uh, we work at a company where um, we're giving people the opportunity to, you know, consume a wide variety of media at the same time, so, uh, like an online software company. So, I mean, what's the direction for that? Um, I'll just take it at the beginning. And I think that um, you're right. I mean, there, there's no doubt that young people are quite adept at multitasking. I think that what I would find more often than not to say, when we look at the numbers, is that adults are actually more adept than young people are. Like, you're probably more adept at, at multitasking than you realize you are because of work, all the many things that you have to, like, bundle and juggle um, in a day. It's like it would be mind-boggling if you see. We've been tracking this for about seven years now, and we're finding that now people between the ages of 25 and 49 are squeezing it, squeezing about 31 and a half hours of activity into a 24-hour day. <laughs> Literally. Whereas 18 to 24-year-olds are only about 29 hours of activity into a 24-hour day. So I hear what you're saying. I think what it is is like the tools that they're using, and your, your mind is like, you know, kind of... Res- probably uh, your receptors are up for the like, kinds of things that she's using and the technologies that she's using. And media is playing a bigger role in that. That's, the only, that's a big part of the difference is media plays a role in that whole thing of juggling lots of different kinds of things and multitasking. Media is less a part of like, people who are over 25. Um, media is used much as much as like, productivity. They're using it for like when I get through with. I heard somebody earlier, you know, after I... After I've done dot, 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 whatever, that's if I put the kids to bed or after I've finished with this project or what have you. But um, the multitasking thing is alive and well, and like we think it's going to only get more so. Uh, and, of course, as younger people get older, media will take more and more a, pre- a, more a position of presence in that world. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I was multitasking. <laughs> this is a, uh, I'm here. John, this is a, a question for you. I have uh, one kind of a general question and, and one more of a, spe- a specific question. Um, I, I, you know, you hear a lot about the, the huge economy in Second Life. I was wondering if you can talk about the kinds of things that, that people are, are buying and selling and how people are making money uh, within the universe. And also, uh, the specific question is, I, I noticed in the bar there was, you know, a steaming pizza. Uh, I assume that pizza costs money. Uh, what is the incentive? I mean, if I don't know if characters have, uh, you know, life points or things like that, but what's the incentive to spend your money on, on a consumable thing like a, like a pizza? So that's interesting. And actually, I'm going to uh, pirate to reply. I'm going to look for uh, searching for restaurants in world, actually. Let's see, where was it? Uh, Sublime, that's an interesting restaurant. Um, again, it kind of, well, okay, the kinds of things that people are buying or selling are really, uh, it, it spans whatever you can imagine. I mean, people buying and selling avatars, meaning, you know, clothing for their avatars or entire identities for their avatars, you know, giant flying dragons or photorealistic human-looking skins with jewelry and so forth. Uh, people are buying uh, Object devices that are kind of fun. I mean, like for instance, I don't know if you noticed, I was playing with a sort of a, an academic one that lets me res molecules in world. Uh, that's a big one. Cool thing is, you know, these are all 
these are all uh, in the world, so you can actually interact with them. You know, I can ride it if I want to. Uh, I can program this molecule with active, you know, uh, with active uh, chemistry sites, so it can actually behave the way a molecule, this molecule behaves. You know, I could create a protein and create an enzyme to have it attack the protein and so forth. Um, anything you can imagine, any kind of, you know, you know, textures. T there are also services, in, you know, basically the entire real estate. Uh, uh, market, a lot of it depends on uh, people buying land from us and then adding value to the land by customizing it using terraforming. So there are people with extremely, you know, with, with mad landscaping skills, I kid you not, in Second Life, who, who charge for this service. Um, you know, why would somebody buy a pizza, though? Or even, like, why, why is there a bar, Dublin, in a bar, the Blarney Stone, why are people sitting down in the bar? Your avatars don't get tired, you don't get hungry. You know, here's actually a restaurant called Sublime that recently opened that actually takes reservations. <laughs> okay? No, no, just think for a hold on for a second. This is really popular. It takes reservations, you make a reservation, you go there, and a chef prepares food for you at your table. Okay? And your avatars can click on it and pretend to eat it and so forth. Why do people do that? It's, it's because there's a deep part of our brain that likes certain things, regardless of whether or not it makes any sense whatsoever. So when, we're, you're, when you're using Second Life, you'll find if you use an environment like Second Life and you're, you're starting to talk to somebody, at some point you'll feel uncomfortable and you'll be like, let's sit down. It feels like we're just standing around waiting for the bus. This doesn't feel comfortable. And so likewise, I think, you know, when people are socializing in world, they like the, um, you know, we have, you know, why are there, why are there, why are there houses with roofs in Second Life if there's no you know, need to be protected from the elements? It's because we f it feels good. It, it, it taps into a part of our brain that you know, grew up and evolved in you know, hiding in caves. We feel, we feel good in a cave. We feel good when we're relaxing with friends, and the visual cue for relaxing is sitting down and going like this. You know? <laughs> and so that's, I think that's why um, you know, things like pizza, it just somehow feels right to have a pizza in a bar when you're hanging out, talking with friends, listening to a live musician. So, whether it be in a virtual sense or in a physical sense. Okay, all the way out the back. Um, I've been watching with great interest the Laguna Beach, and only because it's tied to a show, and it was created by the creators of the show. And I'm interested in this because I write about soap opera and I think about soap opera a lot. Do the writers of the show, do the creators of the show, other than having created this virtual Laguna Beach, do they check in on it? Do they s take a look at how people, how fans are interacting uh, with, the, with the site, with the characters in the site? Well, um, the characters actually aren't in the world. They uh, aren't in the world. That's no, what I was curious right, about. No, no. I mean, we actually... The characters, you don't play characters in the virtual okay. world. We have brought in the cast as, as celebrity appearances. We mm -hmm. have Rocky, you know, Rocky's a cast member, so she throws a house party at her house on TV. And then we actually bring her so you can actually party with Rocky's avatar. It's, it's her controlling her avatar, you know, uh, in Laguna Beach. Um, mm -hmm. But, so, um, so it's not really... But they do. I mean, they, it's, it's obviously a huge part of the world is talking about Laguna Beach, about the show. It's, you know, it's definitely a, a, everybody here, you know, has strong affinity to the show. Um, so we do, and we talk to them all the time about, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of learning going on, and not just from, from virtual Laguna Beach, but, I mean, it's, Laguna Beach is talked about well, The reason I asked the, the question yeah. is soap operas are notoriously bad at gauging audience reaction. 
I mean, hideously bad. They have focus groups that ask the, long, the wrong question in the wrong way. They come to the wrong conclusion, which was what they decided before they've uh, convened the focus group. Right. And I'm looking at this and seeing a possibility that if a show, if a soap opera created a virtual world where fans could go and have the characters interact as the fans wish them to react, would that, I'm sort of thinking that could be a tool sure. for creators rather than getting people in a room and asking them stupid questions sure, and getting the wrong answers. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I will say to you that like one of the, uh, <clears throat> when I went through the list of all the different research techniques that we use, I'm trying to kill the focus group personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this comes from somebody who was an account I killed player. Maureen Bowers, yeah. so, you know. <laughs> he grew up in the world of account planning and trained in all that and like know how to moderate any group I could, po I mean, this room, I could be a wizard with it. But I will tell you that it's like increasingly, of course, people, the respondents have learned how to manipulate that environment. And, um, and then you deal with like, uh, you know, creative people who have also learned how to manipulate it as well. And that's not what it's all about. It really needs to remain objective. So there are things like what you see here where we're actually able to screen the show. Uh, we, have a, we have people lined up, Eric was just telling me recently, where people were lined up to go see a DVD, a screening of a DVD, um, to see this in world. And so we screen the show in world. We're able to get responses that way. It is a terrific way to be able to use to get creative people engaged. Uh, when we first started on this, the creative people were not engaged. And it's like some of it was our, by our design, the way that we created it. Because they just, you know, we, I was screaming, we need to get the creative, you know, need to have the producers, like, connected with this because this is their baby. But, you know, that's, the way that it worked out is, like, we created it on its own first. And then they became, when they had something to react to, then they became engaged. And, of course, it's, it's, it's worked out beautifully. So you're right on. I think it's a great uh, observation of, of a great uh, technique to help to get creative people engaged by using these kind of worlds. Okay. Because you see it real time. Yeah. I need to go AFK to hit the bathroom. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is maybe like a possibly an old question, but rather a perennial one. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't actually play any virtual online gaming of any kind. My idea of games is arcade games. Um, but especially given coming out of sort of the, the, the massive multi-user dungeons and so on, and as the, as the technology starts to develop and we're talking about internal economies, what sorts of responsibilities do you think that you have regarding um, addiction? And I mean, I certainly know people who've lost jobs, spouses, et cetera, to ever crack. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, what, how, what sorts of safeguards do you think should or shouldn't be in the technology to kind of watch out for somebody who, or as you build online internal communities, how, did, how does that kind of take care of itself, or does it? I think it absolutely does. I, 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 uh, my first, I guess, a sort of twofold answer. One is that I think fundamentally, um, as sort of has been talked about in a couple contexts today, these experiences are very positive. We do these things because we uh, seek to have positive results from them and often succeed. Not always. Um, I think that in part what, uh, what's happening is a growing awareness of culture and media and the interactions between the two on the part of everyone, 
I mean, our, our culture is learning about how these things can be and, 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 and sort of how this technology can affect you. And it, part of that is, is something that a community can perhaps use to, to be aware of members that are, are having problems. And part of it is, is going to be just sort of the general level of awareness that we all have. I've, for example, I think one of the things that's, that's happening is that we're becoming uh, much more savvy about cultural contexts, much more aware of culture as a context rather than as some absolute that, that dictates our actions. And um, uh, as, as such, I think that, you know, uh, uh, the culture will continue to learn about sort of the online experience and, and some of its pitfalls. So. Mm. Being upstaged by Sorry. It. <laughs> as it were. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, yeah, so. Episode that Hi, um, my name is Mark Tudors. I'm a researcher at the Annenberg Center for Communications in Los Angeles. Um, sort of following on the previous question, two uh, old points that uh, perhaps it's a good thing that they weren't raised, but I'm going to raise them anyways, um, although I won't necessarily pursue one of them, uh, are, of course, the uh, sort of digital divide debate, which I won't, you don't have to go into if you don't want to, <laughs> uh, and uh, the sort of mind-body dualism thing. And um, But the point that I sort of wanted to... Um, drawn was the, was the uh, the idea that you as the sort of designers of these new public spaces have really um, gone far beyond uh, real the designers traditional designers of public spaces uh, architects and uh, urban designers who have spoken at length and have inspired a great deal of theory and modernism and postmodernism and and they sort of have fallen fallen by the wayside. Um, and I guess there was a quote uh, by the philosopher Eric Cartman uh, on uh, South Park recently where he said, you guys can be in the sun all day and play with a ball or you can sit in your computer and do something that really matters. <laughs> and uh, I guess the, it's not so much a question really as a kind of a general vibe that I thought maybe you guys could speak to um, having to do with uh, sort of overlap between these kind of virtual environments and um, you know, the fact that may, many of us here may be gamers and have uh, avatars, but um, the difference between my avatar and my kind of public performance here is kind of vast, and I'm wondering if you might uh, sort of speak to some, some of the overlaps that you may be noticing uh, that are sort of emerging from these spaces into, uh, I guess, first life, if you want to call it that. Well, the, the, better, the better quote from that particular episode of South Park is, I think, the very beginning where the father walks in and goes, you've been on your computer all day. Why don't you go out and socialize with your friends? And, you know, the response is, I am, Dad. I'm, on, I'm in an MMORPG using TeamSpeak getting XP with my friends. And, <laughs> and, and um, I think these spaces are, are, uh, you know, are, 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 are very real. I would, I, I would argue, um, uh, you know, that um, if you look at the history of any new medium, you know, we always think it's going to destroy the fabric of society in some way, shape, or form. The telephone was going to destroy the family. Even the novel, the cheap novel was going to somehow destroy us because we wouldn't be talking with each other. We'd just be sitting reading books all day. Wouldn't that be an awesome problem to have now? Really? You know? It's just funny to me. I, I don't know. It's, I think, you know, I think it, we always just end up finding a balance. I mean, you know, um, you know I mean, and these... these you know, it's the, the, they're just different mediums. I mean, I see people in virtual reality every single day on the bus. They're on the phone going, yeah, so what do you think? T I'll be home at 8 o'clock. Should I pick up two bottles or three or whatever? You know, people talking 
There's not a real person there. They're not a real human being. It's a virtual experience. And yet, now we just think, oh, it's so wonderful that we can just be so connected with real people in so many different ways. So I think uh, that's sort of the bottom line. Ron? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I would take a slightly different tack. And, and, and um, I think that's right. It is destroying society on some level. It's changing. But seriously, we're, we're evolving. The, the, the paradigms that worked for our grandparents no longer work for us. Note, this has been the case for a while. Not, not always, but, but we've been in a period of accelerated sort of cultural change, and that's what's happening. Um, however, I will also say to sort of recap something I said earlier, which is that I think the online experience has enabled... Um, the Dude, online experience has Dude, you're enabled. upstaged again. Yeah. Give it up, man. <laughs> Give it up. Can we, can we go back to the second line, perhaps? Um, <laughs> um, I think the online experience has, has facilitated the creation of a lot of real-world gatherings, such as this one, um, so that in addition to sort of the... Uh, 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 I, boy, I, I so can't wait till we get multiverse online. In which case, you guys are owned. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the the online experience, and aside from its own sort of virtues, uh, and which are which are are, are many and uh, very real, uh, certainly the ability to kind of tailor your your social connections much more fluidly than I was able to do, in, you know, uh, when I was growing up. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful that that teens now no longer are so heavily constrained by their, the peers in their immediate location. They're able to find people with whom they can connect much more freely. At least that's the, 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 the high side of it. Um, the other part being, though, that, uh, too, I mean, uh, um, I think that we're going to discover uh, all sorts of emergent stuff. I mean, we're, we're discovering all sorts of emergent stuff. Um, and that's going to continue to evolve. I mean, it, 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 and to look at it in terms of how we're changing is, is a, a positive and negative thing, but that's, that's what's happening. You know, so that's my perspective. <laughs> so the question about digital divide, um, you know, it is a, it's a touchy one. It's a hard one to kind of get your head wrapped around because everything seems like it's working against you. Um, you know, we have, there are people in our organization, Brian Searing, who's here uh, from one of the groups, who are working towards looking at new opportunities for us for new digital manifestations and new experiences, and all of those are some—they're not all predicated on someone having to have cable television. Some of them are on things that have the phone. Some of these are around devices that are uh, more readily accessible and more easily shared. So, um, I would say, just as a policy, we're really, we we are well aware of a digital divide. And of course, you know, you look at some data and you see that it's it's collapsing, and some data that shows that it's widening. So. Um, we're focusing on that in some in different kinds of ways, but not with express efforts. We have uh, you know brands across our across the, fuller, the larger company of Viacom that are targeted at some of those audiences and sharing those the learnings back and forth between those uh, those brands and those audiences is, is always something that we also try to do so that those brands that target some of these audiences that may not be as advantaged as others also get the same bit of knowledge and same opportunities to grow and same resources to grow their brands and their relevance as well. Michael? Hi, uh, Michael Lebowitz, Big Spaceship. Um, I don't have like an extremely well-formed question, but I, all of this has been making me think about uh, Neil Stevenson's snow crash um, as one of the two big Woo. predictors of, uh, of the sort of you know, avatar-based virtual world uh, along with Neuromancer. And in, in that world, your, your programming chops sort of defined how well-represented you were in 
the the metaverse or whatever you want to call it, and and it was a sort of a single platform that everybody could interact with, but it was either a function of having lots of money or having lots of programming skill that allowed you to be more than just, you know, somebody who either jacks in through a public terminal, in which case your avatar is in black and white, uh, or, um, you know, somebody who has an off-the-shelf avatar. I think they were called Bettys for women and, you know, something like that, Jackson Bettys, and you just see them everywhere and they all look the same because they have off-the-shelf. So I guess... In some sense, I'm, I'm wondering sort of how this all extends uh, as, as these things become more pervasive, which they will, and as they start talking to each other, because certainly, you know, somebody who develops and spends a tremendous amount of time on an avatar isn't going to want to have to leave it behind when they swap worlds. Um, so, uh, you know, is there, is there another kind of digital divide that's coming uh, to try to tie it back to of, of people who don't have the skill or the money to, to, uh, to generate more than just the most limited of experiences inside here? And, and, and how much uh, do you see sort of new ways of, of, uh, of expressing elitism uh, going on in this. I mean, the, the the one reference that I always think of from from Snow Crash is he goes into a, a space. I forget how he's invited in, and the guy that he's meeting with has perfectly articulated smoke coming off of a cigarette, and it's a subtle detail. But he knows as a programmer that the, that smoke being so well rendered means that this guy is somebody you don't fuck with. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if there's if there are sort of if you've seen things like that to this point. Yes. And, and where do you see it going? Yes, it's it's um, like right now. I, I was answering a question. Visually, uh, it feels this feels right out of Blade Runner, doesn't it? You know, you, I mean, actually, a seedy part of this Japanese-themed sim, which is really awesome. And so, whenever I'm here, I always wear the big bad uh, avatar here. Um, there's no way I could ever make this because I suck at making avatars. But somebody created this and has a business selling these avatars. So it's, you, if you give people the ability to create things, anyone in Second Life can create anything they want. You don't even have to own land to create things. There are people who make avatars and then you know, rent simple little booths in other people's stores to sell them. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, if you can't make it yourself, then someone else can, and then there's a business opportunity. I think that's, I mean, I think that's how it'll, how it'll work out. It, it's, um, you know, the way Second Life is designed, oh, here's somebody who just, I wonder if I scared her. No, sorry. No, she just flew away. Um, <laughs> I'm friendly, really. Um, I love, I don't know if you noticed, I was, this is one, I mean, these people have such a sense of humor, too, you know. You know, the, the, the robot has all these stickers on it, and then there's one that I love on the leg here. Uh, you know, how is my driving? You see that? <laughs> I don't know if that number, that number goes somewhere. So, I mean, I think, oh, here's somebody. So someone else just wandered up. You know, the people that you meet in Tokyo, the seedy part of Tokyo late at night, you never know. I don't know if this person made this avatar on, of their, on their own. I don't know if somebody, if, if somebody uh, made it and they bought it. But there's this opportunity for specialization when you give all the tools to people. So, for instance, you know, you, know, you could be a really good scripter in Second Life and then combine that with a friend of yours who's a really good builder, and then you end up with something amazing. So I think the market will solve those kinds of problems, just like it does it in the real world as well. Actually, I, I've sort of got a, uh, uh, several layers of answers. One is that one of the things actually occurred to me in, in WoW that happened, uh, or is happening now, the high-end World of Warcraft game 
your gear indicates which quests you've been on because it's tagged to your performance. So there's a way in which the status is very clearly defined by sort of what you've achieved in the, in the world itself. Um, and I think that, uh, well, uh, uh, some multiverse words, uh, the client that we're building is going to be universal. So the, the intention is that you'll be able to go to any of these worlds with the same client, depending on what the developers want, quite possibly with the same avatar, uh, and so that there's sort of a, a universal ability to, to, to try various things very fluidly. Um, the second piece of that is we're also developing a, a marketplace for our content creators so that artists and scripters and designers and so forth will be able to sort of, uh, uh, in many sort of different ways, collaborate and sell their skills and, and reap a reward for the creation that's, that's uh, meaningful. The last bit is, and, and especially I think, uh, you know, relevant to sort of the stuff that you do as well, uh, 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 given the, especially the Da Vinci Code site that you were showing us yesterday. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's this wonderful sort of, I think, dialogue going on between uh, uh, marketing and culture. And, and trends and sort of what's interesting and what's, you know, kind of uh, appealing to people and, and how you kind of understand how that's working and evolving and so forth. And that's always going to continue. So, I, I, well, actually, I think on some level it's part of the, ultimately, I think it's part of the, uh, it's, human, it's human culture sort of defining itself. I think this is how we define culture or how we evolve culture. There's this ongoing dialogue, you know, constantly through various sort of media and, and interactions. That is how we sort of evaluate different cultural propositions and, and sort of agree through some sense or other, well, that's more interesting or more useful, or this is sort of how we understand our social identity in a, in a meaningful way. And again, ties back to, to the individual experience. This is how I understand what my life means, or how I should proceed, or how I should interact with way, people in, a, in, in successful ways. You know, whether it means uh, Laguna Beach sort of style or, or, or being, a, you know, a, a werewolf or, or whatever, depending on the context. So, yeah, I think that's, that's certainly a, it's a given of our, of our existence. Hi, I'm Marissa Gallagher from uh, Razorfish. I just had some questions about some of the transmedia sort of aspects of this and how much control you let um, or you give to people who are interacting in the world to actually comment on their experience or to, like, supporting user communities you guys talked about a lot of the applications of this, like the learnings that you can take from simulations and, and some of the Asperger's users, like how often do you actually sort of use this as a tool to allow real-world communities to actually comment back on the, the in-world sort of place and how much of that is like a strategy or is really determined by emergent behavior and how it's being used? Um. I've got a community background. I love it. Or I don't know. Do you? I mean, I I should probably let Todd speak to more, more of that. But um, uh, yeah, I, I would I would rather wait for Todd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that in general that's the right model. Actually, you had Raf Coster's page up a while ago. He gave a, a, a talk a little bit ago about. Uh, uh, the uh, community of service and establishing long-term community ties, which uh, is something that I've sort of believed in. Again, my background's all community, so. Um, I'm believing that what's happening, as, as Raf said, uh, is, is that, you know, there's this evolution uh, towards, and especially you can see it in MMOs, where you're very closely tied to your community. I mean, they're your customers, and what's interesting to them is very important to know. Mm. Certainly at Multiverse Now, we're very invested, and this is my job, really, is learning from, from our early developers what they want, what's going to be useful to them, how they want the, the platform to evolve. And I think that, sort of, in general, that's going to be more and more sort of how uh, content creation companies understand their role. 
by, uh, by interacting with, the, with their communities and by establishing long-term uh, relationships. Actually, uh, Paul yesterday used the word um, sincere, which I think is, 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 is a beautifully apt kind of description of the kinds of relationships I at least am seeing evolve and, and the ones that I think are going to be successful, where you're, where you're able to sort of you know, as, establish, or as Dana said today, symbiotic relationship with your community on a long-term basis. Well, I can certainly speak to uh, the, the feedback we get from in Virtual Lagoon Beach, how it feedback into Virtual Lagoon Beach. What I can't really speak to is how Virtual Lagoon Beach feeds back into Laguna Beach and to MTV. Uh, but we are actively in there. We, have, uh, we have, um, are actively in there talking to people. Uh, we have teams of people who literally, like, even during the events, we, we watch the events, we see how people react, and we, and we try to... Um, um, React, react in you know, real time, week by week. We, we change how, how we do things and, um, and how we message things and who we talk to and who we... Um, we've got a... We started in the beginning kind of like in an alpha. We had a, we had a small community of... Uh, uh, and we, and we, we, we found that there was, there was people there who like wanted to help us and who yeah. wanted to feed, give, yeah. give us feedback. And we're like, you know, we posted a forum like, you know, buried in one of the pages and... You know, we checked back two days later and had, you know, 200 postings on. We were like, wait a minute, yeah. okay, this is perfect. This is what we wanted. Uh, that's why, you know, because it was a test. This is what we wanted. We wanted to know. We, we had never done this before. Uh, so we wanted to hear. We, so we love talking to them. And, you know, and so even some of them we, we promote. We make them, you know, we have a special club of them. You know, we call them lifeguards. Uh, you know, that they, you know, they, we were constant, in constant communication with them uh, about how to evolve uh, this product more than, you know, the... And so, not 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 the transmedia in Laguna Beach, but this product, where they're they're in there all the time. We can, you know, as you can see, we we can't get away from them. Uh, it's, they're they're always there, and they're they're very they they love to give us feedback, and you know, we love to hear it because um, you know they're they're the you know they're, they're they'll make it a success. Is is who makes makes product a success? Yeah, I have a question for Todd actually, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you, you listed a bunch of uh, consumer need study techniques, and uh, I'm personally a big fan of 80-20 rule, so I would like to know the two to three most effective ones uh, from your experience, and also two to three ineffective ones, but seemingly effective, let's say, but actually ineffective ones. Research techniques? You said research techniques? Yes, consumer needs. Uh, what was the last? Uh, sorry. Well, probably two, three most ineffective ones. Well, certainly, focus people is right up there at the top. Um, <clears throat> also, I think I find a lot of times uh, quantitative surveys that are just out there that are kind of mm. unmediated uh, quantitative surveys. So there's now technology out there which allows you to be able to field the quantitative, sur- like you know, field questions uh, to people, but then be able to probe right alongside it. So there's a company called iModerate. I don't know if you've heard about them, but basically you can fill the regular quantity study for thousands of people, but then when they get to certain triggers, that when you get to a certain point, a, a pop-up survey will come up where it's actually moderated by someone who's able to probe deeper Neat. on that. So it's a terrific technology that allows you to be able to kind of combine qual and quant together. Um, around most effective ones, uh, Observational research is another is one that I find to be really, really helpful because, of course, people will tell you things that they never do and people will not tell you things that they always do. 
And um, I think it's really important to be able to take to, for one component of the research kind of menu to be certainly observational. Uh, so you can actually see how they're actually uh, juggling and multitasking, uh, how they're actually using these kinds of worlds. And, and it's not just in this, it's all kinds of things. You can find it. With more and more different kinds of media for people to be plugged into, it's almost incumbent upon us to observe people, uh, which of course costs a lot more money, but uh, the payoff is much greater on the other side of it. Um, Panels, I've never been a fan of, so I try to like avoid those, but like I know that more and more it's, it's important that we, uh, I mean you can use these kinds of worlds as panels, but um, by and large I find those to not be so effective unless they're tied to something real. If it's just a panel of a body, you know, a bunch of bodies with heartbeats, that doesn't really help you. You want to have it tied to a special initiative, then it's something that can be very, very useful. Uh, Todd, do you know Zio Design? Nicole? Yeah. Okay. There's a gal by the name of Nicole Lazaro who's done a bunch of work in observational sort of analysis of, of stuff. And Zio Design is a company named XEO. She's very good. I have down the front. Hello, panel. My name is Scott Meyer. I'm an undergraduate student at just Babson College. And uh, it's actually a pretty quick question, I think, is um, on the topic of content creation idea and having your, your customers or your, your people in the world doing things that you didn't expect. So for John, for example, um, the menu you brought up, and this is what sparked the idea, was there was a line item that said underwear. Now the robot doesn't have underwear, so how does that, how do you let people create robots without having to always go through the, the trivial things like, okay, when I build an avatar, my robot's underwear is the lower section, or um, if I want a superhero, you know, the shirt's going to always have the cape and maybe the, the skin will be look like a shirt because that's the only way I can manipulate it into this world. So there's one example. And for Ron, uh, it seems like you guys are trying to get even one step further back from that. So how do you say, what tools can I give to these people in order so that they don't have this problem where a line item is underwear or a line item is left arm, right arm? That's it. So the, the basic... Um one of, the, one of the basic things about Second Life is that anybody, at any point in time, can create anything, okay? So, you know, at any point in time, I'm here in Second Life, and, you know, I'm logged in as an admin, but anybody, as long as the land allows it, could basically right-click right -click on the ground and then select Create, and then suddenly you're starting to build the basic form as a cube. And everything I'm doing here actually, is actually being seen by anyone else who's in the area, okay? So the tools for content creation are in the hands of every single user of Second Life, which is, the analogy would be uh, similar to something like uh, Wikipedia, where everyone on the internet can edit anything in, um, uh, edit anything in Wikipedia. So, um, you know, the, our, our plan is to, um, uh, you know, to just sort of, actually, could you repeat one of the first questions? I, I lose track. <laughs> it's like, how do you, how do you not well, you give people as general tools as possible. But do you find that they're like, is it with the avatars? Do you find that they're they're just doing a uh, like applying an equation, saying like, when I build an avatar, you know, I've got to make the top portion be like the wings you saw on the other character. There's no wings item, like. No, but because the, I mean, what we do is we have attachment points. I mean, we use basic human anatomy as the starting point. But from this point, people can take it however far they want. I mean, that's the whole point of it. We don't, I mean, for instance, you can do things like uh, run, uh, okay, you know, you can create an avatar that, uh, you know, your body, your, your identity is, 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 you know, can be either a human shape or something completely non-human. 
Um, let me show you an example here. Where's um, uh, no? That was uh, I just bought a I just bought a paper lamp. I need to play with that later. Uh, where's let's see. Where's uh, where's the Landry avatar? So like for instance, here's here's something that's really cool. Okay, so because we're in a Japanese themed sim, it seems appropriate. Um, so people started creating. Do you, know, do you notice what's special about this avatar as I'm rotating around it? Do you notice what's special about it? Cell-shaded. It's cell-shaded. It's cell-shaded. There's no function built into Second Life for making cell-shaded avatars. In fact, when we first saw this, our, our devs were like, how the heck did they do that? We, didn't fig- we don't know how they did that. That's impossible. Um, they did that through scripting. And unique attachments and transparency stuff. And, and, but it, they used the basic tools that we gave everyone to, to do this. So I think, um, you know, we give people a basic sort of, you know, to, to give people a touchstone. When they first come in, they have, you know, there's the concept of I'm a humanoid, I have underwear, I have socks, and so forth. But from that point on, where they go is completely up to them. And, you know, uh, you know something like this, this, I mean, he even has a cute little animated walk, you know. <laughs> Um, our whole point is to give these tools to everyone and then have it all be part of the, the, the same universe. Like, I'm in Nakama right now. I could jump to, uh, I could go back to that uh, uh, Dublin bar now if I wanted to. Or if they wanted to keep that as a separate experience, you know, and, and with its own uh, rules, you know, where they don't allow giant raccoons like me or whatever I am in there, they could do that. So, um, Okay, we're, we're running down the clock, so I'll have two more and then, and then we'll done. Ken? Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about um, the concept of intellectual property in, in these spaces a little bit. Ron, I mean, you talked about you're trying to create a universal client and, and sort of these spaces and, you know, you said hopefully the, the developers will let people, like, move avatars back and forth. But, I mean, if I'm generating income from that, you know, it's going to take a bit of a leap for a content provider to want to move to want to let me move my content from place to place. Well, not necessarily. Yeah. And 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 then and in particular, then just to flip that over to the other side from the user side, you've got the copybot problem on Linden Labs, and and so you know, you know, will the consumers themselves want to permit this, or you know, how does how does this how does this all work together? I guess? Well, first of all, the copybot problem is not a problem particularly w- specifically with Second Life. It's a problem with anything that you just are displaying on your computer. You can copybot things from World of Warcraft. You can copybot things. Anything that you are seeing on your computer is copyable. Anything you hear is copyable because at the point where it's totally, when it's finally decrypted and sent and you know squirted to your screen through your graphics card, then you can grab it. This is what the Motion Picture Association is dealing with in terms of trying to protect their movies and the, you know, the recording industry is dealing with it as well. Uh, it's more of an issue in Second Life because people are, you know, have these in-world economies. And we're actually working to, uh, you know, there's no way you can stop that. But what you can do is, what we're going to do on our end is more, uh, have more uh, attribution for everything that's created in Second Life, build in Creative Commons licensing to, uh, the, you know, to the stuff in Second Life as well. Um, so, you know, the, the intellectual property, we, we from the very beginning have said, you know, you own it. It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. If this person who made this avatar wanted to then make a plush toy and sell it to Toys R Us, we'd be, we'd be like, rock on. That's great. Can you give us one? We'd like it for the office, you know, something. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's our, we make it very clear from the very beginning that we don't retain any of the intellectual property rights. What we do is we, we retain some rights if you look at the terms of service to, like, use images for marketing. That's about it. Because we want to be able to, 
do kind of what I'm doing right now, is just show interesting things as they happen. Ron? Uh, yeah, the, uh, our goal is to empower a range of options for the designers. So it may well be that the, they create worlds where uh, you know, users can copy content. It may well be that they'll want to create worlds where that's not possible. And you know, the technology will sort of support that. The, uh, the sort of, uh, uh, and certainly there are, there are, it, it's clear that there are you know, all kinds of experiences. Harry Potter is a great one. You know, where you want the, the world to be themed and you want that thematic uh, 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 thread to be consistent. Um, the second piece being that, uh, uh, more, more to your question about, you know, uh, movement between different worlds, um, I think that there are a lot of, and, and again, I'm looking for all sorts of emergent behavior to happen here. I'm looking for people to take these tools and, and use them in all sorts of interesting ways, which is the intention. And one of those ways, uh, I, I was actually thinking about, uh, uh, is the multi-pass. Uh, which is my, my coinage, thank you very much, and, and used in, in full intention or awareness of its previous usage. But, uh, but uh, you know, sort of a group, maybe four or five designers will get together and say, well, we're, we're going to bundle all, our, all of our worlds, and we're going to sell them as a, as, a, as a, you know, sort of a, a package. So you can sign up as a client and, and then go between all of them, and then that would be a benefit, you know, to all of them, also benefit to the consumer, et cetera. I mean, I, I think there's all sorts of ways that this can play out. So. Todd, do you want to address this IP question? Sorry? Would you like to address the IP question? Mm, no, I think that's been done. Okay, cool. <laughs> Mike, lucky last. Thank you. Uh, I, I think this is probably a follow-up uh, on, on some of the stuff that's been said already, but I'm wondering uh, to what extent these virtual worlds like, like Second Life uh, have any plans to integrate with sort of the larger information, like Web 2.0 or Web 3.0, where we're at now. Uh, <laughs> Integrating with the with the lar with, with a larger information space of the net, and then and then leveraging that information space against the you know what you call the emotional the emotional immersion of of these three D worlds as a way to sort of navigate that information. And and John, you had mentioned briefly at the beginning about using Second Life as a platform for information visualization in general. Sure. And I'm wondering if that if that's something that if there's any value there, if that's something. Oh, there's total. I mean, that's that's, that's the big thing is when we design you know we design our. Uh, you can bring in video streams into Second Life. You can bring audio streams into Second Life. At the same time, you can use the scripting language to breathe life into the objects so that the objects can communicate and pass data between themselves within Second Life as well as outside of Second Life. So through HTTP requests, through email, through XML RPC calls, uh, there's a passing of data back and forth. So actually that little molecular reser that I was showing you where I was resing molecules, right now it's taking the data for those molecules from a from within Second Life, there's a little note card that's saved in the device. The, that's, a, this is a, that's a project that's under development. The ultimate goal is for, it to, for you to be able to just tell it any molecule you want, and it will go onto the net, pull the data, the molecular data from databases, and then pull the information in. Uh, there's already a great in example of integrating Web 2.0 with this. Is, um, I saw a friend of mine who had a picture frame in his house. I went up to the picture frame, and it was blank. And he said, you know, go a little closer. I walked up to it and said, hello, Pathfinder Linden. What kind of pictures do you like? And I was like, ooh, okay, I better answer something innocuous here. I like dogs, you know. And all of a sudden, there were pictures of dogs flashing on the screen on this picture frame every couple minutes. And when I walked away, it stopped. And then somebody else walked up to it, and the picture frame suddenly just started showing pictures of flowers. Now, the, the, picture, frame was, the picture frame was coded so that it would recognize a new person coming within a distance of it ask it what it kind of pictures the person liked, and then start pulling images live from Flickr. So there you go. You know, there's, there's integration right there. 
Can I just quickly ask one more thing? I mean, is there an issue with integrating with something like, you know, maybe <clears throat> Amazon.com or something? Maybe I'm walking down the street and I see there's some indicator, uh, somebody walks past me and that, that tells me, you know, this guy just bought season two of Dawson's Creek off Amazon, which is, you know, one of the things you have marked as a favorite. So using that as a way to sort of identify, you know, navigate, you know, as a, as a filter to navigate this space to find people that I'm interested in talking with, people who share my interests and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all very, that's totally, the platform of Second Life is open to all of that. And, and they're, they're actually folks from Amazon, their, their web services group, who are f fooling around with doing stuff in Second Life, so it's pretty cool. And so on that note of sharing and openness in Dawson's Creek, I think it's probably a good point to, to end the panel. Um, if we can thank the panelists, that'd be good. Henry, do you want to close the conference from where you are? Do you have a mic in your hand? Uh, yes, I guess, I guess the conference is going to be over in just a sec. <laughs> All I will say is uh, if you want to follow this conversation further, check out the Convergence Culture blog where Sam Forbes does a great job of keeping us up to date on trends around all of these topics, and it's a great place to find out more information about the stuff we talked this week. That said, we will put this out as a webcast as soon as possible, so tell your friends and let them know that there's some interesting content there that might be relevant to them. That's all, folks. <laughs>